0: This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts
1: now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, January the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with Fonce when you pick up the phone or give us a shout in the queue and on the air. The topic, up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709 273 Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626 8626- so I hustled out of here pretty quickly after the show yesterday, trying to get home to watch the end of the Team Canada versus the Czech Czechia at the World Juniors. Flicked on the television, and about six seconds later, the Czech scored the winning goal to win 3-2, 11 seconds remaining in regulation time. It was a fluke goal, and oh my goodness, so out go Team Canada. Their effort to 3 Pete is over. It's amazing the amount of pressure. Now, for starters, I don't live and die with every Canada win or loss or the Montreal Canadiens win or loss or the Blue Jays win or loss. I just like watching the games. You know, it is disappointing when people that you're cheering for lose, but hey, that's it, right? It's a game. But the pressure that we put on the shoulders of these teenagers, now they are indeed a window into the next wave of NHL superstars. Virtually every big name of the NHL would have come through the World Juniors at some point if they play for a country that qualifies for the big tourney. But out they go. Not the greatest edition of Team Canada at the World Juniors, but c'est la vie. Anyway, still hearing a plenty in my email in particular and I heard an interview with Dr. Jared Butler, the president of Hockey Newfoundland and Labrador, about the whole handshake issue. It's a little bit remarkable, that we're solely focused on the fact that there's a handshake being removed from the end of a hockey game, minor hockey between U11 and U18. So well, they can talk about all the altercations that led up to it, and it's not the be-all and end-all, you know, moving to a pre-game handshake or fist bump or glove tap. So the issue for me, and you know, we talk about things that people throw out, like teachable moments and that kind of stuff, I think it's bigger than hockey. As much as I think it's a bit of a knee-jerk mistake, obviously it's not the end of the world, but I think it's a good look at what's happening with youth in particular in society. I mean we've heard the stories, the violence in the schools, some of the impact of social media, the outbursts and yes the lack of accountability. So again it's not just about that hockey game handshake. So you look at the things regarding accountability. Now I've admitted many times in the past, I'm no expert on how we should evaluate where a student is and their ability to absorb the curriculum and to pass a standardized test. We moved away from public, so be it. Apparently there's new modernized ways to evaluate a student's progress, even though maybe not working as intended, given the decline we've seen in math, science, and reading scores. But one of the accountability issues that inside the school, for instance, is you know when you had a deadline to have your book report in for, st- for starters, and if you'd missed it, you were automatically deduced a few marks on the eventual end result of the evaluation of your book report, and now this the endless extension of deadlines that just leads into I think a larger conversation about accountability. I don't think we're doing youth much of a favor with taking away some of that personal responsibility. Now, we don't need to be hardliners. And, you know, we're not talking about corporal punishment. And we're not talking about, you know, going back to the bad old days. But I think we've just seen this trickle towards saying, oh, it's okay. You know, everything's going to be fine. The principal calls home. And as opposed to when they called my father when I was in trouble at school, I was in trouble automatically. And now all of a sudden the turnaround is, how dare you insinuate my Johnny or Jane is a bad kid. So there's just something to it that's much larger than the handshake-related matter. Anyway, if you want to take it on, let's go. And speaking of school and school violence and math and reading and science scores on the decline, a long trend, a couple of decades in the making, now all of a sudden we're told that the Newfoundland Labrador English School District is no more. All the K-12 English public schools in the province are now being represented under NL schools. Alright, so for starters, integrating the public system into the provincial government was one thing. But is there any real need to make that rebrand a thing? It does come with a cost. Obviously it does. So everything that has the headline of NLESD has now has to be reprinted to represent this new NL schools. And big question I would have. So when we talk about this integration into the Department of Education, you know, we're told that may indeed see some savings. How and where and why? I have no earthly idea. They talk about reinvesting some savings into uh, the students and their day-to-day operations and curriculum and delivery of curriculum and investing potentially into dealing with some of the issues regarding teacher shortages, substitutes, and full-timers. So another government rebrand. Not so sure this was required at all, but again, you want to take it on. Uh, let's go. A couple of random notes as I get my mind in gear here. One of my favorite myths inside the world of sports was the curse of the Bambino. You know what that is. So on this date in 1920, the Boston Red Sox baseball club owner, Harry Frazee, announced the agreement to sell the slugger Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $125,000 in cash and a $350,000 loan, which started the so-called Curse of the Bambino, which lasted 84 years until the Red Sox broke the curse in 2004. Johnny Damon hit a homer off the fourth pitch of the of the, of the game in game four. They beat the Cardinals 3-0 to end the Curse of the Bambino. And talk about the value and the money in sport. On this date in 1973, a 12-man syndicate led by Michael Burke and George Steinbrenner III, they bought the New York Yankees from CBS for $10 million. Today, the Yankees are worth $7.1 billion. Anyway, and talk about money in sports once again. So there's going to be some eye-rolling and head-shaking about this story regarding Paradise, the town of Paradise, and their hosting of beach volleyball and box lacrosse in the upcoming Canada Summer Games in 2025. So, you know, to hit the specifications brought forward by Sport Canada, whether it be with the uh, facility like the aquarina, and the upgrades required, the size, dimensions, uh, for soccer fields, what have you, same thing for beach volleyball. So apparently the sand required is not available anywhere in the province, and they had to go out of province to buy the sand. And it comes to the cost of some $360,000. You know, it's going to remain in Paradise for those four courts, two game courts, two practice courts, uh, forever. Well, as long as the sand will last inside the courts, I suppose. It'll be available to the public and maybe for some young volleyball players. But going to be some conversations, I would imagine, in the tax-paying public households of Paradise about that investment. But the town says, you know, given the economic spin-offs and what have you, their hosting of those two events is going to pay off. What do you think of that? All right, let's go. Complete switch of gears. I was a little bit surprised that there wasn't more conversation about the role of the monarchy in the country after the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. And, of course, now pledging the oath to King Charles. So there's a private member's bill that's been brought forward in the House of uh, Commons uh, from a fellow named, what's his name, Uh, René Arsenault. He's a New Brunswick Liberal MP. So it's Bill C-347. Talk about moving away from swearing an oath to the king to simply an oath of office. Now, I think there's lots of people out there that think that it's outdated and antiquated and unnecessary this time and at this point in our history to have that role of the monarchy. But what they call monarchists or uh, people who are trying to make this a republic versus under the Westminster uh, system of government and the pledges to the king and the role of the governor general, which in the most part is a figurehead position, but it does have some real uh, distinct roles in the operations of government. So. I don't know what people think of this, but the folks who are the Republicans trying to whittle away at the role of the monarchy, and they say this is just the beginning. So unless we have, you know, this whittling constantly, because there's even been a change regarding the king not being the defender of the faith any longer. You know, so little things are happening. But unless we get into an all-out constitutional issue, which requires consensus amongst all the provinces and territories to move away from the monarchy, you're going to see more stories like this. Now, of course, Mr. Arsenault has a friend in Pierre Vincent who's been talking about this for uh, ever and a day. But it's just one of those things that don't know how important it is. And if you think about, you know, the cost of housing and the operation of the governor general and the lieutenant governor and all related monarchical representatives in the country, moving away from it also comes with an enormous cost, I would imagine, dollars and uh, cents-wise. So private members bill about the oath of office as opposed to a swearing an oath to the king. All right, talk about costs. So I see Finance Minister Shaban Cody thinking that there's going to be potential ease in inflationary numbers when the Bank of Canada and Stats Canada give us the updated numbers. You know, I don't necessarily feel any of the easing in inflation, you know, trying to get into the window of 1% to 3% and what that's meant for interest rate hikes. So there's been 10 straight interest rate hikes, hikes which brings the Bank of Canada's benchmark or overnight borrowing rate at 5%. So if you're trying to service your debt, whether it be your mortgage and or your line of credit or what have you, it has come with a significant a significant cost. Big one is for mortgage holders. So I've had friends that have had to renew their mortgage since all these rate hikes have taken place, and they have seen a whopping big monthly bill come as a result. So there's been some 300,000 Canadian mortgages that, that have been renewed during the rate hike spree that the Bank of Canada and Governor Tiff Macklem have been on. But there's about another 3 million mortgage holders that are due to renew in the next 18 months. And if you're one of those, you're probably as weary as I am because mine is up very soon and I'm in no mood to see a big increase like my buddies have. But it's coming. I mean, it's unavoidable. I have no choice but to renew. You know, where does the, where does the breaking point begin? So if we're talking about the Canadian economy, and it's pretty sluggish, when you talk about immigration numbers, and actually I'll shelve immigration for a second, the GDP growth has been abysmal. When you do it on a per capita basis, given the historic immigration numbers in the last year, it becomes even more pathetic. So we're looking at six straight quarters with really minimal to zero growth in the Canada's economy. So if we're talking about, the economy is not the government, the economy is us, right? It's our ability to spend. So if and when more money is associated simply with servicing debt, because on the average, Canadian debt holders are spending eighty three on their debt uh, for every dollar coming in the door. So where does it make sense to even further pummel or punish Canadian taxpayers and or the overall economy? You know, obviously the Bank of Canada was far too easy with their very free to cheap money uh, over the course of the pandemic. And some of it was required, but obviously, and not being an economic expert of any note, obviously waited too long. So where do we draw that particular line? Now, Mr. Macklem has said the quiet part out loud, Canadians will suffer and even though interest rate hikes don't really manifest themselves in any real measurable degree for some 12 to 18 months after the fact, but if you're one of those mortgage holders like yours truly, that's one of the worries that I think many of us will absolutely share. Anyway, what else do we want to get to? Okay, lots of talk about travel. The punitive cost or prohibitive cost of doing it, and frustrations that people have with the airlines, and complaints that have been brought forward the Canadian Transportation Agency, and they're dealing with thousands, tens of thousands of complaints. Now, Air Canada's try to lowball their customers with compensation, whether it be uh, cash and or vouchers, at about ten or twenty cents on the dollar for the compensation you're actually due, and people might take it because it takes too long to actually get it resolved by the Canadian Transportation Agency. I have had very few, if any, problems with Air Canada, knock on wood. But we saw what the impact for the the traveling public was uh, last year and the year prior, and now the rebound is on, and there's all the concerns with delayed flights and compensation due, baggage lost, all the rest of it. And now Air Canada, with another knock on its reputation, and I've never had a problem with Air Canada, but out of the 10 major airlines in North America, they ranked last with on-time arrivals. So it has made some 140,000 planes rolled up to the gate more than 15 minutes after their scheduled arrival. The country, that of course Air Canada, the biggest carrier in the country, landed 63% of its flights on time last year. Last, in the Big Ten in North America. Not sure that's a big concern to you, but it just jumped off the page to me. And I've been asked, and there's generally a calculated email group that will send me thoughts overnight about issues that they'd like to hear discussed, then we can do exactly that. The topics are entirely up to you. You wonder, given all the monetary pressures on the federal government and the provincial governments, where the concept of a fixed link between Labrador and the island stands? So there's been some renewed numbers that have been brought forward as recently as August of last year. So Hatch did the evaluation back in 2018, and they talked about a cost in a couple of billion dollars. Thereabouts. Arup has been brought in in 2021, a report uh, delivered in August of 2023, saying now that the fixed link will cost about $4.8 billion, double what was expected. They even say that inflation would see the increase up to th- uh, of $3 billion simply with inflationary pressures alone. So I know some people, certainly in Labrador, down the northern peninsula and on the west coast, probably think this is a great idea. But Arab's numbers are vastly different from patches. Whether we talk about the anticipated revenue, of which they say there'd be about a 10 or $11 million shortfall per annum based on the volume of traffic they see, both individual people and or commercial traffic. They talk about the travel times that have been much ballyhooed by proponents of the particular link between Labrador and the island, but they wanted me to bring it up to provoke conversation on it again today, and we can and we will. So it wasn't that long ago that the Canada Infrastructure Bank partnered with the provincial government of this province to spend about $500,000 on looking at it. It's been in mandate letters for various ministers federally for quite a long time and in the hands of the Canada Infrastructure Bank. On the floor at a liberal convention not that long ago, they pledged to keep it on the front burner. But curiously, given what people refer to as a nation-building exercise, I haven't heard a peep from either level of government since that $500,000 has been spent, since the new Arab numbers came in. And if that's a topic of interest to you, regardless of where you are in the province, let's do it. Talking about fixed, fixed. I heard a bit of an interview with uh, PC leader Tony Wakem regarding fixed election dates. So, I mean, we talk about the election dates that are supposedly fixed, but of course they're not. It's basically up to the whim of the Premier. And both parties, both Jim in from the NDP and Tony Wakeham for the PCs, calling on the government to not have a general election in 2024, but to wait until 2025, four years after the last one. Mr. Wakeham, I think, makes some good points here. First starters, both the PCs and the NDP say they'd be ready to fight the good fight if and when there was a general this year. The Premier has said that there will be a by-election versus a general to contest the seat in Conception Bay East, Belle Island. But Mr. Wakeham makes one key point. He says, it's not only about party preparedness, it's about candidates. So, making the decision to run for public office is a very difficult one to make. And you don't have people who are busy in their own lives, they're working and they're raising their family and doing whatever they do day to day, not sitting at home every night after supper thinking about their potential candidacy. So, unless they have some idea about when the election will be, versus the Premier goes to the Lieutenant Governor and the writ is dropped and we're off to the races, then consequently, some people who may indeed be top-quality candidates, they're under this time crunch that maybe they just decide not to throw their hat in the ring. So for Mr. Wakeman to make that point, I think that's key. Because party preparedness, that's up to the parties. You know, if you don't have your ducks in a row in your district association offices, then that's your own political shortcomings and no responsibility borne by the voting public. But for people who are considering taking a run, and I think the well has been poisoned to the point where a lot of good folks that may indeed in years past decided to run won't. Why? Because of the obvious. So if you want to talk about fixed elections and whether or not you think there's one coming this year, calendar, year, whether it be provincially or federally, plenty of people who support opposition parties, f- on the federal front in particular, are calling for exactly that. But will they get their wish? I don't know. All right, how are we doing on the phone this morning, fans? A very couple of very, very quick ones. So when the government took a knock in the Supreme Court regarding their uh, banning single-use plastics, right, straws and forks and all the rest of it, they labeled plastic as a toxic substance, and that got overturned. But boy, oh boy, the feds are hell bent for leather to deal with the issue regarding plastic. Now, whether or not we have too much plastic in play, which obviously we do, you know, a, a single cucumber wrapped in plastic, you try to open up a Power Ranger action figure, and it takes a forever and a day and scissors and copious amounts of plastic. Now they're talking about uh, a national registry for plastic. How much is out there? How long it lasts after it's been used? I don't know what they're going to do with that data. Seems like a bit of a fool's errand. It'd be nice to know. And of course, the biggest supporter of the plastic industry is the fossil fuel crew. Now, that's that's an interesting topic. Been asked about the carbon tax repeatedly in the last couple of days. We talked about the numbers that people can anticipate this month because, of course, there's quarterly payments. The issue is don't rely on the same number that we talked about yesterday, like, for instance, a single adult, $164, coming this January on the 15th of the month. It's going to change in April. So that's the question that's been posed by many. Is, you know, will, we, uh, will we see the same amount of money coming this year as we did last year as we went on the federal backstop? The short answer is very likely not. When the rates change on the 1st of April from $65 a ton to $80 a ton, including the carve-out of carbon tax on home heating oil and fuel in this province, very, very likely we are going to see a decrease in the carbon tax rebate. So don't bank on it. Now, there haven't been firm guidelines offered by the federal government on this front, but, you know, we see the issues regarding Saskatchewan. They won't uh, collect the carbon tax any longer and all the constitutional and legal issues that brings to bear. Same thing in Alberta, similar types of conversations. But in this province, if you're anticipating the same amount of money in April that you're going to get in January, it's likely not going to happen. But we'll wait to see what the feds say on that one. All right, this may be of interest to you, and it's the last one before we get to your calls. So, based on some court filings and rulings, the so-called Epstein list will be made public very soon. And of course, that's regarding Jeffrey Epstein, who uh, died in the Manhattan Federal Detention Center in 2019. The, you know, the story of he hung himself or he was Epsteined. So there's going to be some nervous people out there waiting to see who's going to be named in some 150 names that are anticipated to be released. So he was convicted of procuring a child for sex back in 2008 in Florida. And of course, his accomplice, Ghislaine Maxwell, is serving a 20-year sentence for her role. So whether it be who flew on his jet or who was uh, made a visit to Epstein Island, what have you, the problem is obvious here. So there's been many names already attached to Jeffrey Epstein, uh, former President Bill Clinton, Bill Gates. He was a friend of Donald Trump's, and up and down the line, former Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers, so uh, pr- Prince Andrew, uh, who had made a you know a out of court settlement with one of his accusers, the problem is going to be clear. For folks who are supporters of one individual or another, one political figure or another, if that person's name is on the list and you support that person, you're going to say, it's propaganda, fake news, they did nothing wrong. If it's one of the people that you oppose, you're going to say, of course, they had sex with a child. So as opposed to Prince or Pauper, Democrat or Republican, you know, Hollywood mogul and or the -the run-of-the-mill businessman from Manhattan, look, whoever's on the list, I don't know if it's going to be accusations of any guilt, but let's try to agree that if anybody had sex with a minor, abused a child, then we can hold them all to the same level of account. So that's going to be fascinating to see, not only who's on the list, but how people react to it. So the Epstein list to be released very soon. Wow. Uh, we're on Twitter, where are VOCM Openline, follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Noreen's going to kick it off, talk about the Newfoundland-Labrador drug program. Don't go away. This is Open
0: Line on the VOCM Bigland FM Radio Network. Welcome back
1: to the show. I thought we were going to start with Doreen, but let's start on line number two and talk about food. Say good morning to Dan Rubin. Good morning, Dan. You're on the air.
2: Hey, Patty. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. A very happy New
1: Year to you as well, Dan. Thanks for making time for the show.
2: No worries. I'm facing a busy day, my first day back at work. And just calling in to give you, your folks, some uh, updates about the work that we've been doing at Food Producers Forum, and specifically the greenhouse that we're almost complete with uh, at the Mercy Center. Yeah, tell us about the the Sun Tunnel. Yeah, I've learned that that's a a copyright, a trademark name, so we may have to drop that name. It belongs to some kind of skylight. Um, But uh, it's an appropriate name for what we've built there because it's quite an unusual greenhouse compared to most of the structures that people build. Uh, but let me give you some background first because m- some of your listeners may know that there is a group called Food Producers Forum, a nonprofit that we started about for almost five years ago. And we've been working on various projects. That group uh, is uh, addressing food security and community health right across the province now. We've got projects all the way up to Mary's Harbor Labrador at the moment. But the way we have started out this was about four years ago, as I think you know, is with a project called the Earth Sheltered Greenhouse. And that's a structure that we built a demonstration version of at the O'Brien Farm here in uh, St. John's. And uh, one of the things we learned along the way, because this is a 300-square-foot building with a concrete back wall fed into the earth. I always call it a, a greenhouse with its arse in the earth, right? is that uh, it's more expensive to build than we originally thought. Our, our original estimate was under $10,000 for materials, but with the cost of everything going up, as you know, during COVID, it's looking like to be a twenty dollars to $30,000 structure. And uh, so we'll call that the Cadillac, right? The Cadillac version. And along the way, we figured we, we better come up with a design that's less expensive for people to build. And luckily, because we now have a partnership with the Mercy Center for Ecology and Justice and some office space uh, on their building uh, on Mount Silo Road, right next to Rainbow Riders. People probably don't even know the Mercy Center is there. Uh, we designed and built a greenhouse that is affordable, under $10,000 in materials. And it's seven foot wide, and it's 24 feet long. And the thing that's unusual about it, the crazy idea that I came up with, was instead of vertical walls, the walls slant outward at a 45 degree angle on the bottom, and then there's a roof that matches that on the top. It's a pentagon, Uh, because it turned out to be a way we could use the existing foundation to build.
1: It it looks pretty cool, that much I can say. I've been down that road in the recent past. so. In addition to, you know, we w- would hope more greenhouses will be peppered across the province yeah. for the obvious reasons, proximity to healthy options and the costs associated is a really big deal. You and the Food Producers Forum have done real good service to the folks here. Get some data in mind. You know, because we forever relied on the fact that we only produce 10% of what we consume, and you found out that's clearly not true. I guess that's a big box store retail number, as opposed to the reality on the ground. There's also the concept of partnerships, whether it be with municipalities exactly. or not-for-profits or charities or what have you. And you've struck one with the Association for New Canadians, not just about food, but we're also talking about other facets of life and skilled trades and opportunities for them and housing needs and what have you. It's a really interesting partnership. Tell about it
2: oh this was such a gorgeous project patty it just gives me chills even now to talk about it the day that we did the concrete work and began to put up the walls we had 30 people there from 20 different countries i took one photo of these guys sitting around they said to me after i snapped the photo during the build they said do you know that we are from four different african countries And I feel so much joy in that collaboration because it's the Mercy Center. It's Food Producers Forum. It's the Association for New Canadians because God knows, I mean, who needs the food? You know, we've got a food affordability crisis going on right now. Um, And it's seniors and students and immigrants and single parents. So to have that crew there... Uh, because all I did was come up with this crazy idea. What if the walls slanted outward and we had polycarbonate on the top and plywood walls on the bottom? We would expand double the, the grow space inside a seven by 24 foot building. And there are classes in uh, gardening and there are classes in building construction. So that project was a training site for people learning building skills from 20 different countries. I mean, how cool is that? And the work was done. The design was translated into a plan by the people leading the construction and the concrete work. And we took the old foundation that was kind of rotting away in the ground, poured fresh concrete around it, set uh, bolts into it, of course, so we could bolt the structure down because God knows we get some wind up there. And then we built these frames, these pentagonal frames, and put them down on the sills that were on the concrete and surfaced the top with polycarbonate and the bottom surfaces, the ones that lean outward, with plywood. And we're, right now we're working on insulating that structure and getting it growing things. Because with a, an unheated structure like that, you can grow food right through the winter. You just choose the things that like the cold, like lettuce and arugula, spinach, chard, kale, corn salad. So we're setting out once again to demonstrate our capacity to grow food here in Newfoundland and Labrador year-round. Because you're right, the only estimates that we had before the survey that we did last fall from the provincial governments were either based on the big box store numbers of how much food is local or else the amount of Ground land that they've made available, regardless of whether it's been given to anybody, cleared, planted, harvested, or anything. So we did the survey last fall, and we found out that 750 people who took the survey produced 6.2 million pounds of food. So that was an eye-opener.
1: I wish we had more details about when the government a few years ago said they'd put forward 65,000 hectares for agricultural purposes. There was one field that apparently was worked on to become a potato farm or what have you. Do you happen to know if any of those 65,000 hectares are producing any food?
2: Uh, I expect that they're in transition. Uh, The people that we work with, uh, the community uh, uh, groups and the uh, small family farms that we're partnered with right now, expand food production at the community level are telling us that they're in process in some cases with crown land acquisition but it's not easy like the red tape involved in applying for crown land uh, is extreme and it makes it hard and it makes it very hard for someone who doesn't have those kinds of experience or smarts to take on the paperwork because you basically have to have a proposal a business plan financial figures in place and one of the downsides of the crown land situation is that in contrast to other provinces, you can apply for crown land, you can get it, you can clear it and plant it, and you will never own that land. So all the investments you put into it, as farmers in Labrador and here on the island have been telling us, is, is you're investing in someone else's land. And and that makes it very discouraging as well. So the short answer to your question of is any of the land in production is yes, it is we're aware of land that's moving into production, but uh, we don't know the extent of it.
1: Municipalities also have to modernize their approach to homesteading or backyard farming or what have you, because a lot of the municipal bylaws are drafted or are crafted based on some centuries-old British laws. So,
2: 1947. Uh, yeah, well, there you go. So, I mean, yeah, it, The it's language something- comes from a British planning document published in 1947, as we learned from research done by Dr. Nick Fairbridge.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a acknowledgement required by municipal leaders to say, well, if we have people, and we're not talking about people having full, large-scale commercial agricultural operations in their backyard, we're talking about backyard farming and homesteading, which has become extremely popular. Before we run out of time, I'll let you get back to your busy day, Dan. Uh, give us some contact information for folks who like to connect with the food producers.
2: Oh, yeah. So, so one of the things we're doing, because we're doing, as usual, way too many things, yeah. <laughs> is I've got an engineering student, a graduate of Memorial, a uh, lovely man from Nigeria working with me on what we're calling the, green, the Community Greenhouse Manual. And in that manual, we'll have the full details of our Cadillac version, the Earth-Sheltered Greenhouse, but also uh, design details for the Sun Tunnel. And uh, we're working on putting that document together. We hope to publish it by March. And so if people go to our website, and when the pop-up comes and says, do you want to be on our, e- our email list, and they check yes and give their email address, they will get a notification when that design is ready for public use. So the website is Food Forum F-O-R-U-M, dot com and our email address is foodproducersforum at gmail dot com and we'd love to hear from anybody who's interested several people have already contacted us with interesting ideas to add to the design and also with interest in getting the plan so we'd love to hear from anybody and uh we're moving ahead with our project and we'll we'll keep you in touch and Great to, to be on the show. Always Happy nice to New have Year. you on,
1: Dan. Thanks for your time. Happy New Year. Good luck. Thanks, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Dan Rubin, Food Producers Forum. So there you go. Interesting projects. A lot of meaningful discussion and conversation and hopefully advancement of some agricultural opportunities. But yes, he mentions quite rightfully so that when the 65,000 hectares of land are put forward, it really does need to come with some re- elimination of some bureaucracy and red tape because we all know and the province acknowledges we have to do a better job to produce more and more where we live. Okay, let's take a break. When we heard the fall economic statement from uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, one of the interesting things that was announced was the elimination of GST, HST, of all professional services rendered by psychotherapists and counseling therapists. Coming up right after the break is psychologist Janine Hubbard. took away.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland
1: FM Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three and so say good morning to so a good friend of the program, Dr. Janine Hubbard. Uh, good morning, Dr. Hubbard. You're on the
3: air. Good morning and Happy New Year, Patty.
1: Happy New Year to you. Welcome back to the show. Thanks. So we learned back in uh, November when the Fall Economic Statement was released by the Deputy Prime Minister that they were taking GST, HST off professional services rendered by psychotherapists and counseling therapists. Now that lost revenue, the PBO says about $64 million over five years, so pennies, pittance. To me, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, it's one thing to have it about an affordability issue, But to me, it also speaks to the fact that the government acknowledges that more and more Canadians need access to mental health care. And so consequently, with this affordability issue addressed, maybe it will influence people, not based on dollars and cents, but to acknowledge that maybe they do need some help.
3: Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, in theory, listen, anything that's going to help increase access, um, obviously, I'm in favor of um, psychologists. That's something we actually fought really hard uh, at at the federal level, so that's not something that we've had to charge for our services. Um, so for us, it isn't going to be a change, but it is indeed for. Uh, some of our other mental health professionals. And I think like a lot of things, um, the devil is going to be in the details because, um, and I know I'm getting in the weeds a little bit here, Patty, but in about half of the provinces in the country, uh, psychotherapists or um, registered counsellors are licensed. So they're part of a regulatory body, same as like psychologists are registered or social workers are registered. Newfoundland and Labrador at the moment does not have a... College or a registration process for counselors, which means so first of all i 'm not sure what kind of stipulations they're going to put on that uh, tax exemption. Is that just going to be for licensed counselors, or is that for anyone who uh you know uses the title of a counselor because at the moment that's not regulated. Um, and that always makes me a little bit cautious because, um, and I think we've spoken before about the importance of making sure that your healthcare provider is indeed a regulated uh, health professional
1: like most things in economic statements or fall fiscal updates you know it's very thin on details a hundred thousand feet above sea level kind of stuff Mm -hmm. here's where it can also be complicated for canadians you know we used to use the one in five need some mental help uh... mental assistance and or counseling or therapy Mm -hmm. now we're using one in four so with an affordability issue tackled here and you're right we don't have all the details to give it a thumbs up or stamp of approval but with affordability addressed in some part here it will probably drive up demand. But at this moment in time in this country, uh, mental health services outstrip supply. How well should we be on that front?
3: Well, and this is just it. This is why, on one hand, we've been very welcoming of the idea of regulating the profession of counseling Um, because, up until now, it's been a bit of a wild west um, in terms of listen, you quite frankly could put up a shingle and say, I'm a counselor and do some amazing work, Patty. Um, So, I'm encouraged by the fact that there's an acknowledgement that not everyone needs a psychologist or a psychiatrist. We all have our time and place and appropriate roles. So the more that we can, you know, really kind of shape up and standardize what's being offered in terms of mental health services, that's going to be great. Now, that being said, do I wish that there were no costs involved for this and that we were beefing up what's available publicly? You've heard me, you know, sing that song to death, but, um, you know, Little steps in different directions certainly can't hurt. Um, We know that a lot of employers have realized that um, providing better coverage, uh, better insurance coverage for the employees leads to better productivity, better, uh, you know, less um, absenteeism at work. So we've actually seen a number of the major employers really beef up their coverage for mental health services. Uh, So we're seeing it kind of on a number of different fronts.
1: Including this company. Uh, Just last month, we were told that all those services will be covered. So that was a great move by our company as well. So, you know, I I do have concerns with the supply issue regarding any affordability and or the numbers of Canadians in need. And, you know, interestingly, and I think rightfully so, you point out the fact that we've got this so-called privatization creep. And it's long been the case with dentists and subcontractors and, yes, psychiatrists or psychologists who were working in the private sector but there's really a, a solid conversation we had here about inside the envelope of universal health care, nothing's free in this world. We pay for it with our tax dollars, mm-hmm. but in the world of mental health care and the numbers of people in need and the societal costs, the financial costs for not getting it in a timely fashion, it's time to include, on top of dental care, it's time to include mental health care.
3: Oh, no question. And also really trying to help um, better understand uh, almost the triaging process that needs to happen. Um, Because there are some people where what they need is some supportive counselling, whether that's a single session, whether that's a group um, that provides some psychoeducation around a topic. Um, Sometimes it's uh, I need the chance to, you know, get some things off my chest or have someone who can give me an objective opinion um, right up to. The I need a formal diagnosis, I need, uh, you know, evidence based structured treatment, perhaps I need um, psychiatric medication. Like, there's the full continuum. And what we, you know, I don't think we've done a great job is in helping people to understand what that continuum can look like. And also that you can bounce back and forth from one to the other. Um, you know, there's the having your family doctor who provides that long term care, that long term service, and I know you've spoken to uh, Christy and others about the huge gap in that particular service Um, but sometimes like I say sometimes you need the walk-in clinic and that's great and that meets your needs so I think we've come a ways in terms of understanding that it's not a one-size-fits-all or even for the same individual that it's always the same services that are needed Um, but it's again combination of getting the right fit for everyone and getting the accessibility getting the access when it's needed
1: and you talk about gaps and in t- gaps inside the towards recovery report and the province's commitment to spend 9% of the healthcare budget directly on mental health services and we're not there
2: no
1: uh, this is going to be maybe a clumsy question but i'm going to try to p- put it forward <laughs> the way i intend so, you're a clinical child psychologist. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been people questioning the time with returning to school, which I don't give a whole lot of credence to because you can always tell the child that you're going back to school on Tuesday the 2nd. I mean, there's preparation time for all of these things available to parents and caregivers. But how do we talk about things regarding accountability? So whether it be how people are adhering to rules in school and some of the issues regarding school violence and deadlines for submitting your book report and the issues of, you know, having to do away with post-game handshakes in minor hockey, to me they're all interlinked because we've got a certain lack of accountability and I'm not talking about going back to the bad old days of smacking the bum with every, cross, every false move and you know not being hardliners, giving your child a space to grow, to be independent but also to be held accountable. How do we navigate that very tricky balance?
3: (laughs) There's a million-dollar question, Um, Fatty. I I hear you because I think one of the things that we have seen has been uh, a real difficulty coping with emotion regulation, coping with big emotions, understanding what are just normal emotions. I know something that the government worked really hard on was introducing a... Uh, additions to the curriculum, uh, looking at social and emotional learning, like right down in kindergarten, learning to name the feelings. Um, and learning to tolerate distressful feelings is probably one of the biggest, uh, solu- you know, solutions and strategies that's going to need to be there. Learning to deal with disappointment, learning to deal with consequences, Absolutely. Um, and natural consequences. Um, yeah, I just for me personally, yes, I was very disappointed when I heard about the handshake thing because I thought you're you're having them avoid the issue that they need some guidance through. Um, as opposed to keeping it in a place where there can be some modeling, there can be some supports, there can be some suggestions, there can be, um, you know, all the ways to learn that. Okay, yeah, how do I, how can I be a sore, lo- you know, how can I be a good loser? How can I be a good sport? How can I acknowledge that? Yeah, you know what, I might have lost the game, but there were some really good things that happened in there. That's the kind of thing that we want to see developing. So just avoiding a problematic situation honestly is almost never the long-term solution. It works in the short-term, but not not long-term in terms of development of problem-solving skills.
1: And it's hard to even know what holding a child accountable even means. In hockey, like a suspension, or you're grounded, or I'm taking away your iPad, or your cell phone, <laughs> or... You know, it's different strokes for different folks, and different sorts of accountability, and... Not gonna say punishment, but tools to acknowledge that you have to deal with your emotions. Well, tools
3: natural, to acknowledge that you've dropped the ball. It's all about natural consequences. If you didn't get your assignment done, you gotta tell your teacher you didn't get it done. I'm not writing in a note to excuse you. Yeah. And then you g- need to navigate with your teacher. How are you gonna make it up?
4: tricky That's what we have to do as grown ups.
1: We do so. And, you know, accountability comes in various forms and fashions. And there's no textbook or handbook for how to be a parent, no. you know, whether it be for your your toddler, your adolescent, all the way to your teenagers and my boys in their 20s. So, uh, Dr. Hubbard, we always appreciate your time and perspective. Would you like to say anything else before we say goodbye?
3: Oh, just a happy New Year to everyone. Um, Remember that most New Year's resolutions fail within the first six weeks, so please be kind to yourself and evaluate very carefully. If you actually want to be making some changes right now, um, set yourself up for success, not um, uh, disappointment.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hubbard. Happy New Year. Stay in touch. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As the clinical child psychologist, Dr. Janine Hubbard, very helpful. Uh, Let's take a break. Noreen, appreciate your patience. Talk about the Newfoundland Labrador Prescription Drug Plan. Don't go away.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland
1: FM radio network. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's go to line number one. Noreen, you're on the air.
5: Hi, good day, and happy new year to you, Patty, and your family. The
1: very same to you, Noreen. Thanks a lot.
5: Um, I had a lovely Christmas gift come this year.
1: <laughs> what was that? Uh,
5: a letter from Newfoundland Drug Program. My husband is a senior, and I'm getting my spouse allowance. And the two of us are very sick. We had to move out of our home into an old age apartment so we could get you know, easily around and stuff. And my gift was for Christmas from them, I have to pay 99.3% on my drugs. What changed? (laughs) I don't know. This is the problem. And I've been working on this since before Christmas and I only found out today that they're not gonna change that. And I've even tried to get a hold to my member, Jeff Dwyer, and I haven't even heard back from him about it.
1: So what were you paying percentage-wise prior to this unfortunate letter?
5: Well, before that, it was 60-odd. Before that, it was 20%.
1: I don't know exactly what changed in your life circumstances. It's not like you saw a big influx of money coming the door.
5: No, it's not. Like, we had our own home at first, and, like, we could live there and everything first when we start getting the money and everything. So, well, like, I only had to pay 20% on it then, which I could afford more at that time. Then, my husband, uh, the first year the Dakota came out, he had to get a, uh, a pacemaker put in. So, he had to have more pills, but now he only has to pay the $6. But with me, I have uh, arthritis, two kinds. I've got a spine that's decaying. I've got um, this other thing wrong with my back and it goes down my leg and I has to have a cane to walk, right, mm-hmm. like, and I'm, uh, I'm depressed, I'm on pills for that, I'm on anxiety pills, and my anxiety pills has changed and they're gone up in price instead of what I was paying for my other ones. Plus, I'm supposed to have two EpiPens because where I was so far away from the hospital, and that, and I'm highly allergic to bee stings and probably everything outdoors.
1: Noreen, what do you estimate is your monthly prescription drug bill for all oh the all God. the things you're taking?
5: Well, I don't know about monthly, but I know I have. I even went and got it done off and sent to. Uh, I know that new no one I'm taking, is 25 something that I have to pay that was up to last December. That was to December, it was 25, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, 24.50, I have to pay myself, that was December. Now you can imagine why I'm going to have to pay it this month because I have to get that one every month.
1: Have you had anybody, whether it be your own pharmacist or the Munns Medi- uh, Pharmacy School, talk about the types of drugs you're taking and whether or not you need all of them and whether or not you're on the right regime?
5: Uh, yeah, my dear, I haven't talked to, uh, well, I talked to my pharmacist, yeah. and the specialists. Just have to give me all these pills that I'm on, and I have to take them. Because I'm even blood pressure pills.
1: That's a lot of pharmaceuticals, isn't it? Yes, so Mr. Dwyer, if, uh, if he or someone in his office is listening maybe he can dig a little deeper to get you at least an explanation as to why your co-pay has changed as much as it has there's a long way between well, I think you said 90 something percent from 20 where it once was
5: Yeah like uh, another at uh, 0.7% as a 100% I said it was just well, I didn't have to the paper saying I got to pay 100%
1: Absolutely 100% is right. right
5: But like they don't take in in uh, in consideration that like my 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 situation has changed. I had to move out of my home, me and my husband, because we could not stay there anymore because it was too hard for us to get our food to our house in the wintertime. We're not allowed to shovel or nothing. He's not allowed to go get no wood or anything because that's what we had for heat, right? So we had to move into this place and pay rent, something that we never had to pay before, which, you know... Now we do, so that kind of stuff should be taken into consideration and the price of food.
1: I'd like to be able to find out, but every time we talk about someone's personal, private issues regarding anything inside the world of healthcare, it's impossible for me to get answers, but you know, maybe for your member to try to get an explanation, and hopefully he can call you back so you can paint this picture for him, and he can try to figure out exactly why things have changed so drastically for you. And if I could do it, I would, Noreen, but I just run into roadblocks every time regarding healthcare because all I'm ever told is, is privacy, a privacy yeah. issue, and they're not wrong.
5: Yeah, and that's, and that's the same thing. Like, I usually does everything for my husband when, I have, when he needs to know stuff. And he says, well, is he dear? I need to get his consent to tell you anything. Right. And I'm his wife. So, yeah. you know, like uh, the government's making things way too hard for people as so far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, on some fronts, you're right. Now, we have to be careful with people's own privacy and their personal information, medical and otherwise. But So, Mr. Dwyer, if anybody belongs to your office or you yourself are listening, you've got a message in your inbox from Noreen. Please give her a call back. And let me know if you have any luck, Noreen.
5: Okay, then thank you.
1: You're welcome. Take care.
5: Okay, you too.
1: Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, before I get to the news, let's take another one online, too. Good morning, Joyce. You're on the air.
4: Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, I, I called yesterday, but I didn't get on, and I was um, interested in uh, a gentleman that came on, and he didn't wasn't enjoying the Christmas music that you guys were playing. Right. So, anyway, I I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I like staying in contact with the community. I have Spotify that I could be playing Christmas music on all the time, but I'd rather... Makes connection of a local station, and you guys were phenomenal. I, I really appreciated the Christmas music. It didn't end after Christmas Day. And I had a lot of friends uh, voice their opinion that they really enjoyed it, also. So I would say keep it up do it again. Yeah, fair
1: enough. And you know, that's just the way of the world, isn't it? You know, you'll put something on the radio, whether it be a specific show or Christmas carols or whatever. Some people yeah. will like it, and some people won't. And that's just the nature of the beast. And if you're trying to please everyone, you're absolutely on a fool's errand. But I'm really glad that you enjoyed it.
4: Yeah, it was It was definitely, and we had it up till New Year's. And Well, and I still listen to you guys now. But, you know, it was refreshing that the Christmas music continued.
1: Well, once again, so uh, I'll pass your your uh, pleasure, your uh, I guess your approval of our programming over the holidays after Program Director Greg Smith, he and the team that make those types of decisions, well, way above my pay grade, but I'm glad you enjoyed mm-hmm. it, and thanks for the time this morning. Thanks for tuning into the station.
4: You're more than welcome. Keep it up.
1: Thanks, thanks a lot, Joyce. Take good okay. care. Thank Take you. Yeah, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Here we go. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it goes, right? Some people will like it, and some people won't, and that's how the world works for better or worse. How are we doing out there this morning, Fonts? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to discuss whatever's on your mind. Don't go
0: away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Big Land FM radio network. Welcome back to the show.
1: Let's begin this hour on line number one. Good morning, Arlene. You're on the air.
6: Good morning, Patty. I'm calling this morning regarding a lady that's very um, near and dear to me. She's had a lifetime struggle with mental illness, but had experienced a a stable period of about 10 to 11 years. And until about eight months ago, and she's been in and out of hospital uh, for eight months, um, very unstable, uh, not showering, not eating unless coerced, very difficult. Um, When she comes from the hospital, either she really has no place to go where she is safe. Um, either her family is working, um, children living away, children with small children in the home who shouldn't witness the behavior she exhibits, which leads her to go home with an elderly sister with a heart condition and a mother who is in her 90s. Um, so I guess our biggest concern is that they did send her home from the hospital on a trial on the 19th and 20th of December. Uh, And we were all very hopeful because Christmas is coming, and that's exactly what we want to see. But she engaged in some really self-injurious behavior and had to go back to the hospital the next day. Uh, She stayed there. Uh, not showering, not eating, um, just in really poor, you know, lethargic mood. And the following week, expressed her wish to um, end her life again. Followed by the next day, her family getting notification that she was going to be released on the 21st of December. Uh, and again, family was hopeful because their medical community is telling us that you know she's. She's doing okay now today, even though yesterday uh, she wasn't doing okay. Uh, When she was picked up, she was the last person in her room to be picked up on the uh, 21st of December. So all four ladies in that room at the health science were released roughly around the same time. I guess they'd all kind of gotten better at the same time. Um, It didn't go well at home, and on Christmas Eve when she was, there with her elderly mother, um, she made a very violent attempt um, to end her life. I was one of the first responders there, along with um, her other family member, and uh, so you know, um, I've been a counselor for 30 years. So we very quickly initiated emergency services that we needed to put in place, and I commend yours ambulance. And uh, our RCMP, the excellent response and very humanitarian and professional. However, upon being transported the next morning into the Waterford, they did what they called were tests. I'm not sure what they were because I'm not the caregiver that has the you know the context, and I'm not in that position. Uh, and called the family and asked if she could be picked up the next afternoon, a Christmas day after this happening. Um, they managed to keep her in the hospital until yesterday. We all, basically everybody refused to pick her up because home is not the place where she needs the care. She needs specialized care that nobody in her family is trained to be able to give. She needs 24 seven watch. Somebody's got to sit by her side for 24 seven. So she was released on a taxi to come home to her own apartment with three hours of home care a day. Um, She answered the question uh, when she was evaluated that uh, would indicate, yes, I'm fine to go home, but anybody in her close circle knows the reason she answered those questions is because she would like to be home alone because then she gets to make decisions on her own. And we're very fearful that that decision would be that she won't be with us next week. Uh, so I'm very disillusioned with our health care right now. Um, you know, supportive care facility would be really good for her. Her family is willing for her to go there on time. She's willing. And then uh, she changes her mind, and uh, she's been evaluated as having sound mind. Uh, so we're really left at a lot. So what is
1: a supportive living facility? What, what does that mean specifically?
6: I'm, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I'm, my guess is you're talking about probably a, a senior's facility. Okay. Uh, okay. She barely ekes in under, I guess, the range of being a, a senior. Like she would be in the age group where some people would receive Canada pension support. Well I guess she would qualify for a home for for seniors too. And
1: there are examples of people who are not sixty five years of age and older living in these care facilities for a variety of reasons, which I would imagine includes the condition that your friend finds herself in. So when we talk about presenting at the Waterford and being released and going home to a place which is not stable and don't have family members who are trained to offer the support she needs, this is a bit of an intrusive type of question, but is this lady also experiencing suicide, uh, suicidal uh, inclinations or ideations?
6: Oh, oh, this is our major concern because this is what uh, we responded to on Christmas Eve and uh, done in a house with an elderly lady that she cherished when, when her life is normal. She, uh, she cherishes this lady and, and can't do enough for this lady. And this is what she did in front of this lady, but yet is being evaluated as being of sound mind. And uh, so like where it's a, it's a real puzzle to us how the decisions get made and, we, we're not getting any answers. I will say that our um, local MHA's office has been very helpful. Um, they've helped us a lot and made some connections, and um, so that's been good. But when it comes to the health care, I spent all yesterday trying to find connections and phone numbers. You're either left with uh, leave a message uh, or this is not the appropriate place to call, I'm just, we're just lost right now.
1: There is a disconnect in messaging from all levels of government when it comes to mental health. You know, we're told, if you need help, please do, do, uh, turn to the uh, proper pro- or the appropriate professional to get it. And then you hear these types of stories. So the governments can't have it both ways. So I think it's important that they've initiated 988. is a mental health crisis line, a su- uh, suicide prevention line. And hopefully your friend can be equipped with that number to know that if and when there's no one there to help, that that is uh, a number she can call to get some help. But uh, again, inside the world of being told that the federal government acknowledges the mental health issues regarding one in four Canadians who need support, the provincial government talks about spending 9% of the health care budget on mental health services, and yet we hear these stories far too often. You know, if, some, if someone finds themselves in crisis to the point where they're presented or present themselves at the Waterford, Go through some standardized tests of what I don't know, and then told to go right back home to the place that saw you in the crisis that you're in. so I just don't understand the messaging and or the execution
6: i uh, this is where we are, and i mean we're we're at a place um where the location where she did this is a place that we frequent uh because well we we frequent that place. And to be quite honest, it's very difficult for the two of us who responded to this first to go back to that place. We're finding it really hard, Um, and uh, we have supports in place to help us, and we help each other. Uh, But, you know, so now that leaves that system, it's going to take us months and months to be able to walk into that house and say, oh, we're here for a tea. Now let's relax. Like, because she was sent home from the hospital prematurely it's robbed us of it's robbed all of us all of her family of having access even to that home with you know we have access to the home but you know with peace and security and go in and relax and you know we just got home from work we're going to go in and have a have a tea and something to eat here now and like we've been robbed of those things her grandchildren have been robbed of you know, is it safe for them to go and see Nan in a situation like this? No, not really. You know, she can't be left alone in a house with her grandchildren, because if they had seen what we had seen, their lives would have been disrupted for a long time.
1: I'm sorry to hear all of this. So, I don't know if this question will make any sense, but so what's next?
6: Um, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, Patty. We We really don't know. Um so we're very much hoping there was to be a meeting between this lady and her social worker and the social worker and the lady were hoping to you know, were hoping that she may agree to sign papers so that she can get the help she needs in a facility where she is going to be monitored by monitored by professionals. So this is our hope and prayer at the moment that she will find herself in a supported living community in the very near future. That's our best hope.
1: I hope so, too. Uh, listen, good luck with that. And if you don't mind, whether it be via email or even a return phone call, just let, let me know what happens here.
6: I will, definitely. And thank you for taking my call. This is my first time calling, but I felt this was worthy of the public knowledge. Uh,
1: of course it is, and I appreciate your time. Stay in touch. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Arlene.
6: Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
1: And Arlene, you know, so it's a sad state of affairs. But she made an interesting point there at the end, you know, say she thought that that was worthy, that phone call was worthy of public airtime. And it absolutely was. It's one of those things that, you know, I, every now and then, infrequently, maybe I should do it more often, to remind the listener and the potential caller that if it's important enough to you that it, to occupy some of your time during the day, concern you, concerns you, and have questions, nothing's too big or too small. Like, it really isn't. This is the proper avenue for any of those types of discussions. So regardless of what it is that you want to discuss, including spreading some cheer and some good news, which we probably don't get enough of in our day-to-day lives, period, regardless of this show or anywhere else. So everything's open for discussion. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland
1: FM radio network. All right, so one day the sun will shine and the have-not will be no more. Of course, echoed by former Premier Brian Peckford back in 1982. And for the first time since 2008, the province is now back on equalization. It's interesting to see the political rhetoric associated with it. Now, there's many provinces in the country that are absolutely conservative equalization formula, and I think this province should be included in that list. So there's $218 million coming from Ottawa in the 2024-2025 fiscal year. For some, it's recognition of, you know, the formula, the way it's intended to work. For others, it's a political failure regarding the management of the economy here in the province. But it's all a revenue-side formula, right? So, a couple of important notes here. Provinces don't pay equalization. So, whether you're living in some of the western provinces where that's been the rally cry coming from your leaders, premiers, and others, provinces don't pay. Individuals pay their federal tax, and some it set aside inside the equalization pot. This year, some $21 billion. So, our slice of that $218 million is really small potatoes. You know, there was great applause and pride coming from some corners back in 2008 when we moved off of equalization. You know, Premier Danny Williams at the time thought it was a momentous occasion for the people of the province. It did kind of put us a little bit on the back foot regarding our so-called fair share of federal tax dollars. But inside that world, you know, so we are amongst the provinces that receive it. PEI, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, and us. Inside the $21 billion, of course, $13.1 billion flow into the province of Quebec. That's where the various premiers in the country are suggesting that is patently unfair. And they're not wrong. We have read and talked to uh, uh, economist Trevor Tome. He's a professor at the University of Calgary. Maybe we'll try to get him back on again because equalization is absolutely complex. But inside the province of uh, Quebec it's pretty clear that they have found a glaring loophole, a massive loophole, a crater, that they can navigate the equalization pot. So basically, they talk about Hydro-Quebec's fiscal capacity. And so what they do is they subsidize the electricity rates in that province, and consequently, they come up with a revenue side that looks much different than what it really should be if they were charging market rates. If Hydro-Quebec increased their uh, cost for electricity by $0.04 per kilowatt hour, we would see their equalization drop from 13.1% to 5.1%. I mean, that is a big deal. So remember when Ches Crosby was running to be the Premier of the province, talked about holding a referendum on equalization, even though, regardless of the result, whether or not that would force the hands of the federal government? I mean, this equalization formula, other than minor tweaks that have happened in the recent past, has been in place since the Harper government. So... I don't find any lack of pride in place or any such displeasure or consternation over the fact that we're on receiving it at this point. I mean, $218 million out of $21 billion is really not painting a picture that's dire. Now, provincial economy it depends on where you live and your status and your job and your, the comforts that you enjoy and the level of bills and debt that you've compiled. But generally speaking... This is not really bad news. It may be in some people's minds, and certainly if you think that this Liberal government has has, uh, passed the best before date, it might be one of the rally cries we hear on the campaign trail. But we'll break down equalization a little more when we get uh, Dr. Trevor Tone back on the show. Let's go to line number one. Stu, you're on the air. Good
7: morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you.
1: Happy New Year to you as well. Uh,
7: Patty, I was trying to catch up with you uh, before the holidays, but anyway, here we are. I've got a condition that a lot of Newfoundlanders would probably have and not even be aware of it. It's called hemochromatosis. It comes from the Scottish side of my family and it's a very deadly condition to have and there's no cure for per se, except for me I uh, like this next week now I got to go drain off another half a liter of blood uh, <clears throat> excuse me to uh, to get the iron down iron and and whatnot. And for the longest time, I didn't know what was wrong with me, and neither did the doctor until he said uh, one day, he said, uh, he said well, like, every couple of weeks, my liver would be great, uh, and probably a month or two later, it was in trouble, and, you know, it was back and forth. And he said, well, something's not right here. And he and he did the iron check, and I, well, he said it was the highest that he's seen in his career. And I've done a lot of research on it, and it comes from the Scottish side of my family. Typically, I think uh Anybody with uh, northern European uh, ancestry so that would probably describe a lot of Newfoundlanders, uh you know and, and whatnot and, uh, and and again like there's no awareness being made of this from uh, from uh, from the healthcare professionals uh, from from the government on down and uh, like I said most people aren't aware of it and got it and and, and the thing about this iron overload uh, Patty it definitely uh, it uh, imitates or creates diabetes. Uh, you know, liver failure is one of the worst things because once all that excess iron, like if you got this defective gene, which I got, which means my, I can't get rid of the iron naturally in my body, so it just builds up in, in, uh, uh, in the organs and, and the liver, of course. Uh, everything is filtered through there. That's the first thing to get hit. And then your heart and, and on and on and on. And I thought, <clears throat> well, you know, it uh, just needs to be brought to uh, the public's attention, and I thought maybe down the road, uh, uh, probably with the government and VOCM, to uh, you know, start making people aware of this. And, and a simple blood test can tell you uh, uh, roughly where you are. So, you know, that's what we got to do. I think, and uh, is raise public awareness. And and uh, your thoughts.
1: Well, interestingly, iron deficiency is one of the main reasons people can't donate blood. So you say people may indeed have this condition, which I can't pronounce, and they may not know it. So are there any symptoms associated with it? How did you find out that you had it?
7: Uh, I found out, I think, because uh, every so often, I, I, like I, I do blood work religiously every, a couple times a year, and I usually get a full profile done to see what everything is doing. And the doctor picked up on... He said, there's something going on with your liver and uh, uh, high enzymes and all this stuff. So, you know, we did a little bit of blood work and then we waited a few months to see where it would go, if it got worse and so on and so forth. And sometimes it would go back to normal and, and and probably three months later, it would be back up again. And he said, well, what's doing this? You know, and we, we, we're going to look in, into it a little further. And, uh, and, 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 and finally, after quite a few years, well, since 2019, that's when he found the problem, and uh, I finally got diagnosed just about a, maybe uh, a half a year ago, actually in the fall of, of last year, It's when the lab in uh, St. John's determined that I had uh, what's called the classic uh, And, uh, Patty, there's also a, a, an outfitting uh, in Ontario. It's called the Amochromatosis Society of Canada, Another uh, important thing that uh, people should be aware of and, and connect with them and you'll be able to get more information and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, So like I said again, it, it, it emulates a lot of symptoms that, like your doctor could be treating you for diabetes and you'll end up with diabetes or a bad heart or a bad liver. If the doctor doesn't, uh, uh, you know, find out what's causing these things, and, and you're misdiagnosed, then you're still in trouble because they can treat your liver all they want and your heart and, and all this stuff all they want. If if the iron overload is doing it, then, like I said, it has to be diagnosed, and the only way to uh, to treat it is to have blood drones called a phlebotomy, take off about 500 milliliters every couple of months. You know, then once a doctor and you've been diagnosed can... can uh, uh, can, can, can you know uh, do the maintenance on it? Uh, so, uh, you know, like I said, again, there's all these things that doctors are treating people for, but the root cause of it could be the iron overload. And you're right, most people are uh, have what's condition called being anemic, uh, uh, not enough iron, right? And the blood that I drain off is perfectly good, even for forgive people for transfusions. Uh, But, of course, they send it over to Halifax, of all places, to uh, dispose of it. So it just gets wasted, right?
1: Why would that be? uh, Because, I mean, Canadian Blood Services always talk about the need for more donors and the shortage of blood in their storage. So why would they send it away? Is there a specific reason for that?
7: uh, Like I said, there's uh, there's nobody here collecting. That's the other part of the story I want to talk to you about. I've been trying for, like, like, uh, uh, over the past couple of years... Uh, like, there used to be a, a, a team come here in Port of Bass, and they set up in, in like, the Lions Club, you know, and they're looking for donors, and, you know, there's always a big turnout. And so eventually they closed all that down. Then Cornerbrook closed down, and I even drove to uh, Grand Falls Windsor one time just to give blood, because I've been donating blood all my life. I don't know, something like 100-plus or plus, uh, donation I've done over the years. And uh, so now the only way I can get give blood is if I go to St. John's. And the last time I was in St. John's, uh, a whole number of years ago, I had I went in and donated some more blood. Uh, but I didn't know then I had that condition because where I was donating blood, that that kept the that kept the iron overload in check. So that wasn't you know again. So there was, was nothing suspicious there then. Everything seemed to be okay. So I. But been talking to the uh, Red Cross saying, you know, why don't you, uh, uh, you know, uh, try, try make, a, you know, make an effort to come back, and so that people around here can give blood. I guess this comes down to cost. And I even had, uh, I even had, uh, well, before they moved out of Cornerbrook, I had a, a big crowd of people that was willing to go on a bus. Uh, uh, one of the buses here, the area, or one of them, or strict, no, Strickland's bus here in town. And you know we all get the corner rope, and people can do some shopping and donate some blood, but <laughs> most people just wanted to be paid for it. So I said, well, that might be what Red Cross might have to do, Patty, to uh, to fix the uh, to fix the uh, you know the the uh, the problem with not not enough blood here in Canada. And uh, like I said, so finally I kind of gave up on it because uh, it, it, for everybody I suppose it seems to come down to money. So I don't know why the government is not providing. Uh, a bit of money, uh, you know, towards uh, uh, Red Cross to entice them to come back to town and start draining off people's blood, you know, and so on and so forth, and and, uh, and keeps the iron in check. So that's where everything's at, Braddy uh,
1: Interesting. You know, we had a call on this similar topic uh, in the last week of last year, Talk about the fact that there's folks in so many parts of the province that would like to donate blood, but of course, unless you're living in and around St. John's, it becomes a real chore. You know, to get in your car to drive to St. John's for a specific reason to donate blood might not be uh, something that people are willing to take on. We've tried to get Canadian Blood Services to come on and talk about, you know, whether mobile blood collection clinics can be frequent or on a notable schedule where people know when they're coming to town and can plan accordingly. So it's one thing to say that they need more donors and they need more blood and more plasma donations, but you've got to make it easy for people to do so.
2: Yeah,
7: it seems like they're not willing, uh, and, and they didn't specify why, uh, but I, I would I would probably guess... Uh, uh, that is, it's all due with uh, do with funding, right? To get it done, right? I would think but, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, if we got uh, if they got to pay people to donate blood and and as needed as badly as they say it is, which it is, I think, uh, uh, no problem there. Uh, yeah, so why not? Uh, you know, because it, uh, you know, you, you know the old saying, "Blood, it's in you, you know, it's in you to give," right?
1: Well, I mean, there's parts of the place in the world where they pay for exactly that. The United States, you can pay, uh, be paid to donate blood, so. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what they have to do, but the need is obviously very real because they are always uh, on yeah. the air talking about the need. So, And I don't begrudge them. Listen, if we can spread the message and encourage more people to donate, we'll do exactly that. But, but insofar as e- the ease of donating, that's also something that, uh, uh, and you're 100% right, this is all about cost. It's not that Canadian blood services don't want your blood. is they don't have the money to travel around and or to pay you to make the donation.
7: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's some people out there that wouldn't mind donating to this uh, to this cause you know and if the government hears this message that we're talking about today which I'm sure they do uh, let's get uh, let's get talking and uh, you know and, and and get some funding put in place get some people to donate and, uh, and see if we can set this up because uh, uh, you know it's, it's life or death is what it is right
1: hundred percent Stu, I'm glad you made yeah. time for the show you're welcome to join us anytime at your convenience.
7: Thank you for your time, Patty, and taking my call. And uh, you have a great day.
1: The very same to you. Thanks, Stu. All right. Bye bye. Uh, good call. Uh, just a couple of quick notes here. You know, there's all sorts of pots of money to make the transition in your home from oil to whether it be the federal program, central heat pumps. And then people talk about the difference between the mini split and the central heat pump, of which they are two different beasts. There is warning being brought forward by, from an email here this morning. So, this is about the fact that, you know, for some programs where it's a rebate, that still means that people have to come up with cash up front, and for many, that's really difficult and/or impossible. But the most prov- the most recent provincial announcement on this front, I think, it was some 157 million dollars for exactly that transition. The bill was being sent directly to take charge. So this fellow here is warning that it's taken a turnaround time of some six to eight weeks to process applications, trying to find out more information about exactly what that. The program that he's talking about because in the most recent provincial announcement it was the work gets done and the folks who do the subcontracting work and or the sale of the unit, they just build, take charge directly and you're not out of pocket up front at all. So I'll try to find out a bit more on that front. is exactly what program they're availing of. We get lots of questions about that stuff. I have some of that information available in my head and at my fingertips, but the, the basics are you just really need to know what you're getting yourself into. So if you have want to avail the Canada Greener Homes Grant and or the most recent uh, federal announcement and or the provincial monies that are out there, the very best thing to do when you understand what part of money that you might be eligible for, how it works, whether it be a rebate or cost uh, covered immediately by the program and what the implications are with your insurance. So call someone, one of the outfits that sells and installs the units whether it be central heat pumps or mini splits, to go down the subsidy road, and absolutely call your insurance provider to make sure that what you're installing still qualifies you for the type of coverage that you currently have. We've had some calls where people have installed some of these units and, you know, considered them to be the primary source of heat and have run up against a problem with their insurance company. So before you even make the move, and for some it might be very attractive for a variety of reasons, whether it be cost or efficiency or what have you. So those two things call the companies that sell and install, call your insurance provider before you make a move to, to avail of any of these pots of money. That's the best advice that we think we can give you on that front. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, the topic, you know. It's up to you. Don't go away.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Uriel. You're on the air.
8: Hi. 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 Um- I wanted to kind of set the record straight on something. Okay. Uh, I was referred to on your show as an abusive neighbor there a while ago, and uh, I just wanted to explain my side. That's okay?
1: Sure. I'm not sure okay. I remember the call specifically, but did anyone mention your name and accuse no. you? Okay. No. no. So set the stage. What was the call? and What was the complaint? And then tell us your side.
8: The complaint is I'm um, abusive neighbor. Okay. I'm barring them from access to their property. Oh, I
1: remember that call now. Yes.
8: Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I just have it jotted down here, so I'll just try and get through it. My family have the land since the ni- 1800s. Uh, my neighbor's grandfather purchased a piece of land to the east and the west of my family's property. In 1925, from a fisherman's widow, only accessible from the pond or from the shore. Uh, in 1930, my grandmother conveyed her property to my father. So both grandparents, her grandparents and my grandparents, died in the 1940s. In 1958, my neighbor's father became administrator of his father's estate and he sold the land to his son. uh, My father owned the land to the west and the south, and then uh, to the north was another neighbor, and then the other side was the pond. So uh, Joe died, I'm sorry, my neighbor's uncle died in 1980, and without a will. So uh, before my father died, he uh, conveyed... Three building lots to my sisters, but because he had a fence in property, because the outer side was was uh, marshy and stuff, it wouldn't be good for his animals. That was their frontage to get to the road. So uh, after he died, all the rest of his property was left to me. So because this frontage was my sisters' frontages. I didn't register it because they had to get to the main road from this building lot. So, uh, in 1993, my neighbor's father sold the land to my neighbour, and we were still bordering to the west and the south, and the pond, and the north was my other neighbour. There was no driveway included. However, they used the land, and we assumed that it was a right-of-way of of necessity. So we did speak to them on a few occasions and made sure they understood this is just a right-of-way of of necessity. So they didn't tell us anything other than that. So in 2018, I purchased a piece of land off of one of my sisters. And because I owned it, the frontage, I registered the frontage. And... uh, I only claimed that what was in front of her parcel of land. I left the other two sections vacant for my sisters. So when my neighbor found out that I had it surveyed and on the survey, it was called a right away. So she, uh, my neighbor started a campaign against me, telling me that I didn't own any of the land and it was a private driveway. She doesn't have a bill of sale saying it's a private driveway. However, It was never a private driveway because it was only bought to fish from the lower pond. So I uh, went over the paperwork with him several times. And last May, uh, her husband agreed with me on all the points that I was shown him. I have aerial shots. I have photographs. I have their own indenture that explains they didn't have a driveway. And we we met an agreement that I would let him... Change the direction of the right-of-way so my two sisters can get out, I can get out, he can go in and turn to his property, until he could develop his own driveway, and I sold him enough land to develop a driveway. However, when I bared off the section I needed to bear off so I could use my portion of that right-of-way, uh, the police were called, lawyers were involved, they want to back out of the right-of-way agreement and they're practically they've gone everywhere they can go, they've gone to every level of government saying that they're in a land dispute. However, they've never owned it, the land. You can register land, that don't mean you owned it. You can survey land, that don't mean you owned it. They do not have a bill of sale for this person, parcel of land. So in May I sold them enough land. So in the meantime they got it surveyed in September, and now they've included another portion of my land that was never sold to them. They had their barn laid on my land, uh, and it's called occupied by on the surveys. But now that I sold them enough for a driveway that they refused to develop, they have now claimed the portion of my land that was once occupied by him, but it, it was my grandmother's, my father's, and mine. So. I have exhausted all avenues that I can go to. I have been abused by these people. I have been... they Anyway, I can't get into all that, but they refuse to acknowledge that my sisters and I use our father's property to get to the main road where they never owned it. They were using a perceived right-of-way a right-of-way of necessity, and it's no longer a necessity because I sold them enough land for them to develop their own driveway to come in a completely different angle, not interfere with any of our properties, and they have done everything that they can possibly think of to deter me, and I have a house started on that piece of land. So yes. I just wanted to set the record straight for all my... Good wishers that drive past my property looking at me all the time, thinking I'm bearing off two senior citizens when it's the other way around.
1: Now, I can't recall every single detail in the call you're responding to, so I'm not really sure what to say in comparing and contrasting statements, but is there not a way that this can be dealt with without going to court? Is there not a simple solution available here?
8: Well, I thought the right-of-way agreement was a simple solution. It It gave 10 points. It said who can use it, why they can use it, when it can be terminated. Everything was there. It says we, we we will sign off on any past, present or future claim to your land. We will use it at our convenience until we develop our driveway. However, when they went back to the surveyor, they wanted the surveyor to continue putting in that they had a driveway going through my land. And the surveyor refused. Because when he seen all my paperwork and all my documentations, my photographs, they knew that these people were never conveyed that piece of land to have a private driveway on it. So I have been in touch with lawyers, but over Christmas it's hard to get a lawyer. I've spoke to the Crown Prosecutor. I spoke to the RCMP about their laying charges because they, they use fraudulent affidavits to get to to register this land they've never owned it, this land their family never owned it, this land yeah so i'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard spot. as
1: am i as am i at this moment because again maybe given what you've told me i might have to really, really listen to that phone call just to see what I can deduce from both sides being offered here. Oh,
8: yeah. Well, she said that she couldn't get an oil delivery. Yeah. And I have her barred out with with a barricade, which I do because that way my two sisters can use their property and I can use mine and they can use theirs. But they were never barred out. Now, I did have a little bit of an altercation because they were using both sides of the right-of-way and I just wanted to make my point, so I did park my vehicle so they would be forced to use the side... That we agreed upon, <clears throat> but anyway, that was just a little moment of frustration. But in the meantime, uh, yeah, they're they're very difficult to deal with, and they signed and they also signed an agreement in '09 with the three sisters that owned the property at the time. We we you know suggesting or, or confirming that this was a right of way. However, it was my land they were using for this right of way. But because I didn't have a register waiting for my sisters to figure out where they needed their driveway to go. I might never have had the claim I'd only I bought a piece of land and I need to be able to get to the road and it's my father's property. It's been been our family since the 1800s. So I really don't know how to convey to them that they've never owned it. One-on-one, I mean, she admitted the other day to me that it was always a right-of-way. And then she covered her mouth because, oops, I wasn't supposed to say that. And he knows the difference. But I don't know. I really don't know.
1: I don't know either. And this is not specifically about you and your neighbor and this issue. You know, we always hope that we have a neighbor that we can get along with and we can rely on. But unfortunately for some, the best neighbor is a tall fence, and that might be the yes, circumstance.
8: you gave her, too, yeah.
1: Well, I, and well, I'm not trying to be judgmental, because I don't know either one of you, and nor do no, I know anything right. about this land or the history of no. uh, ownership or right-of-way agreements like or what said, have you. When,
8: when, when she told your listeners that I was barring her from getting a oil truck, that would mean fire trucks, emergency vehicles, that it was never the case. She called you on a Thursday. Saturday morning, a truck backed in and delivered oil. So... You know, I'm in a small community. I'm on a dead-end road. It's an absolutely beautiful area of the community to live in. I've had a for sale sign on it. I had a buyer. But because of those people going to the town council, telling them that we're in a land dispute, the buyer had to drop out. I wanted to get away from those people, and they've, they've done nothing but crucify myself and my son and my husband since 2016. I have... Cards here from my, my husband has on his wall from years and years ago. I was helping them in a snowstorm get their vehicle back on the road. And they sent us a thank you card. So we have been good neighbors, both them and myself. And it wasn't until I registered my father's land that things went south. And there is no legal legal claim on their side. And I've contacted their lawyers three times. I have not gotten a response because, like you said, they should be able to be settled out with three or four people sitting down, looking at the information, using their common sense, and coming to a sensible arrangement. Which is what I thought we had with our right-of-way agreement because we told them, "Listen, we'll give you some time. I don't even care as long as you can buy. You know, you can follow these. This." right away agreement. I don't want to put you through the expense. If you need to sell your house, you need to own your own driveway.
1: I appreciate the time and I'm sorry for your troubles, both you know, and I'm of course I have no business getting in the middle of anything, especially things like this, but uh, you are welcome to offer your side of this this morning, Uriel, and thanks for the call.
8: And thank you for giving me a platform. Thank you. Take care. Goodbye. Right, bye-bye.
1: Whew, uh, let's take a break. Don't go away.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM Big Land
1: FM radio network. Welcome back to the show. So with the two callers that are in the queue, we didn't want to shortchange them because we're coming up against the 11 o'clock news. But interestingly, you pick up on what uh, Dr. Janine Hubbard was saying. We were talking about the fact that in the fall economic statement, the government said they were removing the GST, HST from professional services rendered by psychotherapists and counseling therapists. And as Dr. Hubbard pointed out, We don't really have enough detail to know what that impact will be. You know, there's no college of psychologists in this province, whether it be someone able to just put out a shingle and say, I'm a counselor, and then be able to bill the general public. I think there's room for a conversation about universal health care and mental health care services because it's a really fragmented uh, situation here, isn't it? We know that there's a psychologist shortage here. There were some concerns. Over at Buds Wellness Center, you know, more and more often now we're seeing, whether it be in the world of registered nurses, uh, more flexibility for your schedule, better pay to move off to work for a private travel agency versus work for the public system. So on the lack of detail there and the concerns that Dr. Hubbard spoke to, it's very much similar to the concerns being brought forward by some of the wind to hydrogen to ammonia proposals or proponents. That's regarding access to 15 to 40 percent tax credit for these so-called green projects. Not everything is as green as maybe advertised, and there's no real firm details about the definition of green or the strict regulations, or pardon me, specific regulations regarding access to those subsidies at the top end in particular. Vastly different in this province when the opportunity to integrate with the provincial grid, but about 80% of our electricity coming from renewables, versus Nova Scotia where 51% of their grid is fueled by coal or coke fire generation. I'm not sure if that's what Jill wants to talk about, but she's in the queue to talk about the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Many people who are concerned with or opposed to these projects were calling for the province to push this off to the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Federal Environment Minister Minister Stephen Guibo said no need. So maybe that's what's on Jill's mind. Also, with the pending by-election coming up in Conception Bay, East Bell Island, on Monday, January 29th, the PC candidate is Tina Neri. She's also in the queue, and then plenty of time for you. We're taking a break for the news. Don't go away.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM Big Land FM radio network.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number two. Say good morning to the PC candidate running the upcoming by-election, Conception Bay, East Bell Island. That's Tina Neri. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air.
9: Good morning, Patty, and uh, Happy New Year to you and all your listeners.
1: And Happy New Thanks Year to you it. as well.
9: So, uh, yeah, Patty, I was just listening this morning, listening to your preamble relative to the mortgage rates. And, uh, you know, it's concerning. And I just have to tell you that I totally agree with, with what uh, you were sharing. You know, I'm, I'm out there now and, and uh, campaigning, knocking on doors, and you know, this is what I'm hearing. You know, I was in... Uh, subdivision areas within, you know, families, small children uh, in Portugal Cove, St. Philip's yesterday. And, you know, we have these working class families. They're in situations where both parents are working. They've, maybe they've got a couple of kids, you know, and their mortgage renewal is coming up and there's just no money left. Like they just don't know if they're going to be able to manage it or not. And it's so concerning to hear that this is what's happening. Uh, people are looking for help and it's just not being seen, you know, as we look at it with present government, we have, the situation here with the liberal government imposing these taxes, these, the gas tax, the carbon tax, the sugar tax, and people just are not keeping up anymore. So, um, yeah, I just, I just wanted to share that, uh, it, it's it's definitely something that I'm listening to. I'm hearing from everybody, and, you know, it's it's uh, we need some change there for sure.
1: So you mentioned some of the provincial levers that could be pulled. Sugar tax is one. I mean, even with the forecasted amount of money that the government thought would come in and the, on the revenue side, it came in as more than that. So it's not working anyway. People are still consuming mm-hmm. what they always consumed. But insofar as the big picture items like uh, interest rates and mortgage rates and the like – there's not a whole lot provincial governments, regardless of what the parties in power, can really do about it. So can you elaborate on what you think the opposition is or what political parties here in this province could do on that front?
9: Well, yeah, like it's it's a matter of just putting people in better positions to be able to manage these things financially. You know, I mean, the, the, the PC party has always been opposed to the sugar tax, uh, voted against the carbon tax. Um, you know, it's 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 being addressed it's strong advocacy that you know to the feds and 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 recognizing what it is that we can be doing to be working with them to ensure that we are uh, allowing individuals to be able to keep up with the cost of living and be able to manage all of these things that are happening in their households that are just limiting their regular everyday activities i mean it's just it's over like it, it's not getting any better it's it's increasingly becoming worse we're hearing it from people we're seeing it within the economy and you know we just have to we do we have to do better we have to be excuse me we have to be advocating strongly we have to be ensuring that everybody has uh you know strong education and awareness about what it is that's being imposed on them and what we can be doing instead of having to go out there and impose all of these taxes
1: i have i remember when uh, the party was led by mr crosby and talking about balanced budgets and even legislation associated with it and on the federal side the conservatives are also talking about balanced budgets when you look at the amount of borrowing, and I don't deny that the amount of sovereign debt nationally and or provincial debt is troubling because we're at about $30,000 per person with our own provincial net debt, so we have to do something about it. But where are the ideas about increasing the revenue side? Because if we are talking about balancing a budget with borrowing in the billions some, uh, some years, there's a long road between a $9 billion budget and an $8 billion budget to do without the borrowing. So give us some ideas on the revenue side
9: i i guess it's something that would have to be examined especially if we uh, you know when we have the opportunity to be able to form government and see exactly what it is that needs to happen from a re- revenue perspective but as you mentioned earlier i mean if if it's important to be able to seek this revenue without putting individuals uh you know at risk within their own homes within their areas we want to be keeping people you know, we want to be keeping people here in the province. And a perfect example was, you know, when we talk about these rates. Is My own son, I mean, he went away. He went away to school. He chose to come back home to Newfoundland and Labrador. He chose to buy his home here back when it was manageable. And now he's looking at the situation and thinking exactly that. You know, how am I going to continue at... At my young age how am I going to continue to be able to manage this afford this and live here and so it is important to be to recognize that we do have to of course continue to balance our budget but do we have to do so um, with such grave circumstances to the individuals of Newfoundland and Labrador I mean there. Uh, to answer that question I don't know right now what exactly can be taking place but I certainly know that it is something that we, that, that the PC party is very focused on. And, uh, and our leader, Tony Wakeham is saying all the time, you know, it, it is about education. It's not about taxation. It's about being able to work together with the people of the province and recognize how it is that we can continue to, um, you know, get out of debt, balance the budget, look for revenue services and, 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 and move from there. That's, I mean, that's all I can, I can say at this point about that, but I know that at the end of the day, There has to be something, and that is a strong focus and priority of the PC party.
1: Inside the world of mortgage holders, and I am one, pardon me, your son's concern regarding his mortgage and affordability. There's not a huge difference regarding home ownership here or anywhere else in the country. You know, the purchase price point is one concern. The mortgage is what the mortgage is regardless of where you go to whatever royal bank branch, regardless of what products sure. people are in. So that's something. So fair enough to not be currently in government and talk about potential revenue-side ideas, of which I have some, some uh suggestions that people can maybe consider. But in some of the worlds, like your leader, Tony Wakeham has a background uh, in healthcare, as an administrator in yeah. particular. When the provinces talk about recruitment and retention, and the numbers are up, and it's really hard for me to square some of these circles. There's more doctors than ever before working in this province. We don't know if they have full patient rosters or they're doing pure research or uh, simply uh, being instructors or whatever the case may be. But healthcare is going to be one of the crucial issues that are being debated on the campaign trail. If the system is broken, where do you think it's broken and what do you think the provincial government has not done under Liberal leadership?
9: Well, I don't think that we have done anything in the beginning to be able to retain the individuals that are here. That are going through these uh, programs in our province from an education perspective and doing what we can do to keep them here um, and not have them be leaving somewhere else we were talking to uh, 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 Tony was talking Tony wakeham excuse me was talking to a group of uh, nursing students and he asked them you know they were they were about to be finished their program and he asked them if they were you know if they had jobs yet and they didn't they hadn't been approached they had no uh, opportunity to know what their future might be from their career perspective and many of them have already got plans to leave so i think if we are able to um to address the individuals as they're going into their programs you know letting them know that there are jobs here for them and, and doing everything that we can to retain them here in this province i think is uh is of the utmost of importance um I, again you're right it's, it's everywhere it is an issue everywhere but speaking directly here to what we need to do I think that's that's first and foremost what uh, what is on the agenda, is to, to ensure that we are offering individuals opportunities uh, right up front and giving them reasons to want to stay here and want to be part of their communities and continue to provide service. That's you know,
1: one. We, 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 sorry? I, I thought you were finished. Go ahead and finish your thought.
9: Yeah, no, I was just going to say that, you know, we, we aside from that, we, we just need to have more economic development in the province overall. You know, when we when you're talking about the revenue side of things, you know, we need to be doing what we can to be building these opportunities instead of, um, you know, giving people reasons to deter them from from opening up small businesses here or continuing carrying on with expansions that they might have be considering. I mean, you know, we borrowed money to put into a rainy day fund and the the, the rainy day, I guess, is here. It's, it's, it's important to to be using this money using the the money that is available to us the revenue that is occurring and using it in a way that is going to be addressing the needs of the province instead of continually putting people uh families young children you know in positions where they just cannot manage it's it's not what people work really hard for every single day and myself uh, you know it's fortunate to to be elected as well as uh, as the pc party as a whole is is that is a priority. You know, when we're looking at health care and housing and cost of living and all of these taxes we've been referring to, I mean, there there has to be change. There hasn't been in a number of years uh, with the Liberal government, people are expressing what their issues are on, on a daily basis, and they feel like they're just not being heard because there has been no change. So that's what we need to do. We need to look at these things, the, what, your, what your guests are talking about and what you're referring to, and we just need to make change.
1: Tina, last one. So I don't know how big a deal it is inside the District Association office down in Conception Bay, East Bell Island, but Daryl Harding, who was the president of the association, wrote a pretty scathing letter to Tony Wakeham, your leader, regarding your candidacy. They say the protocol was not followed, the process was not adhered to, and uh, basically accused Tony Wakeham of simply handpicking you. He did refer to you on the campaign trail. Uh, trail to become the leader, as would be a great candidate, what have you. So the District Association seemingly, certainly the leadership, are quite upset with your candidacy. Your reaction?
9: Well, you know, this has been dealt with very clearly by the party. Um, uh, as of right now, I have, I have some very strong supporters. The party is supporting me. David Braswell is supporting me. And the district association members at this time are supporting me. As far as I am aware, I was a very open and fair process as per the Constitution. I abided by what was necessary. And, you know, at this point, I'm just focusing on my election and not on on the concerns of other individuals. So uh, it's my understanding and my belief that everything was done fairly and with due process, and I've signed my papers this morning and am ready to move forward uh, and continue over the next 27 days or so uh, and work really hard on the campaign that we're doing right now
1: one of the key areas for uh, focus for the district association would be not only in preparation but also getting out the vote are you concerned that with some of whatever the level or percentage of fracture is that it's going to hurt that get out the vote effort because that's massive in every election
9: yeah, not concerned at all. I think, you know, I've got a great team. I've got a great bunch of supporters. We are working really hard every day. Um, you know, people are going to see me and hear me at the doors. They're going to have opportunity to share any of their concerns and issues. And uh, and if this happens to be one of them, then they're free to ask the question. But other than that, I mean, I certainly haven't heard anything from anybody along the way since uh, since everything that you're referring to. Um no, I'm just looking forward to a really honest, clean campaign and uh, moving forward and doing what we need to be doing, and that is just getting votes, and finding our voters and finding our supporters.
1: Other than the big headline-grabbing issues that we talked about, taxation and revenue-side generation, what have you, what's a key, one specific area of concern that is for Conception Bay, Spell Bell Island? Not the big headline-grabbers, but one thing inside your district that you think is not working well or you think is broken and what you can do to fix it.
9: I think communication. I think the communication between, uh, you know, as a municipal counsel, counselor, excuse me, in the district since uh, 27, excuse me, in Co. In, in St. Philip since 2017, um, you know, I'm very aware of what the municipal issues were. And, and it's all about communication. When we need something and we need to reach out to the provincial government, um, we need we're, we're doing this because we're trying to address the needs of our constituents. And when we don't get a response. Um, you know, we hear about it uh, at the at the municipal level, and so uh, for me, I believe it's 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 communication about all issues, all areas that have been presented at the municipal level, whether it be infrastructure, taxation, et etc., um, or whether it be just you know basic services, healthcare services, mental health issues, all of those uh, those things that are present in every every municipality, every district across the province, across the country. So those are uh, I think those are the things that need to be people just need to know that they're being heard and so to me what's most important is the communication open lines of communication and the ability to ensure that we are acknowledging people's voices that's that's it. They have to be heard. They have to have a voice at the table. And uh, I, I am absolutely certain that I am an individual. I've been doing it for the last, uh, you know, thirty plus years in my career as an advocate, and I continue to. Uh, I plan to continue to do that now within the district, uh, if given the opportunity to do so. So,
1: Tina, I appreciate your time. Good luck.
9: Thank you so very much, and thanks for having me, Patty. Have a great day.
1: You too. Bye-bye. That's Tina Neri. Bye-bye. She's the PC candidate in the January 29th by-election conception Bay East Bell Island. Let's take a break. Appreciate your patience, Jill. She's there to talk about the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Don't go away.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM Big Land
1: FM radio network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Jill. You're on the air.
10: Hi. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you.
1: The very same to you, Jill.
10: So, as you said, my name is Jill Adams, and I'm the head of the Newfoundland and Labrador Satellite Office for the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. The Impact Assessment Agency is a federal government agency that conducts impact assessments, or what people might know as environmental assessments, for major projects. And the reason I'm calling today is to let folks know about a public information session that we are having in Placentia on January the 8th from 5 30 to 8 30 p.m. at the Star of the Sea Hall. So we're planning this, Patty, because there's a project being proposed down there by the Port of Argentia to expand the existing Argentia Marine Terminal. Uh So our session is a, a chance for the public to find out more about the project. They can ask questions. They can provide their comments or concerns. There will be staff from the Impact Assessment Agency there on site. They'll do a presentation to explain the impact assessment process and answer any questions. And there's also going to be folks from the Port of Argentia there to provide a presentation about their project and to, and to answer questions as well. So we would like folks to register, if possible, by calling 709-725-2725 or emailing us at cooper cove. That's cove at iaac-aeic.gc.ca. Whoa. Um yeah, that's pretty much what I'm calling today.
1: Okay, what specifically brings the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada into the Port of Argentius plan to expand?
10: So, Patty, what we have is, is a regulation that lists all the types of projects that we will conduct or that have to come in under our Act that we will start an impact assessment on. And expansions of ports over a certain threshold meet that criteria. So we're starting the impact assessment process for this project.
1: So does that mean that the province has no role in any eventual approval or de- are declining this project?
10: No, the province has separate approvals for the project. They're also conducting a, an assessment as well. And we're co- cooperating with them. Uh, so we're having, for example, one public comment period so people can write in to either uh, process and we can share comments that we have with the, with the provincial government as well. So we're trying to coordinate as best we can with them.
1: Inside the world of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, you know, there was a while there not so long ago where there was exactly zero projects being considered or evaluated by your agency. Other than the part of our agenda. what's on the plate of the uh, group, your group at this point?
10: So I'm not sure what you mean by zero projects. We have had a few projects uh, on the island that we've been assessing, particularly offshore oil and gas projects. We've done a number of impact assessments. We also did an impact assessment on the Valentine Gold mine. Those have have been finished um, and completed, and and there's been uh, ministerial um, approvals for those. So um, on the plate right now, there are some projects. There's a mine in Labrador, the Joyce Lake mine. It's an iron ore mine. There's an impact assessment being conducted for that one. Um, And there's also uh, a Tilt Cove oil uh, oil offshore exploration project that is currently under uh, impact assessment by us as well. How
1: does any proponent or proposal end up on your desk? I mean, is it referred by the province or is there hard and fast rules regarding some federal oversight like in uranium mining and or port expansion? So is it a referral process or like, for instance, I guess what I'm trying to get to here is how do things like the wind, hydrogen, and ammonia proposals not end up being evaluated by your agency versus the province taking it on? Because the minister responsible said, oh, there's no need. Can you help us understand why that, how that decision was arrived at? Because the way you describe some of the evaluations you're currently doing, this an industry in its infancy, so many unknowns, the ability for intervener status and some funding for interveners would be what some people who are concerned would be looking for. Can you help us understand why your agency isn't taking this on?
10: Sure, that's a that's a really good question. Um, Like I indicated previously, there is a regulation associated with our Impact Assessment Act that lists the types of projects that have, you know, potential for impacts in federal jurisdiction, where our agency is is a responsible authority to conduct those impact assessments. So if there's the project is not listed on that list, we're not responsible to conduct impact assessments of those types of projects. Some of those being, like you indicated, like onshore wind projects, they're not listed uh, currently on our project list. Offshore wind is listed, for example. So it really is about what are those projects that are on the list and their potential for impacts in federal jurisdiction.
1: Would it be automatic? There's lots of talk about hydro development currently between negotiations between this province and Quebec. There's been a lot of mention about Gull Island. Would projects like that automatically be on the agency's desk?
10: Nothing is automatic. Like I said, it it would have to uh, determine what those potential projects include, what the components of those projects are, and whether those components uh, and those projects are listed on our impact assessment uh, regulations for, for the types of projects.
1: Last one before I let you go, and then I'll give you the inform- give out the information one more time about your public consultation. So with a couple of, of recent Supreme Court rulings, one regarding plastic and the label of toxic and waste management being provincial jurisdiction, another about federal overreach, getting into provincial jurisdiction, things like pipelines and what have you. Has the mandate or the focus of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada changed based on that court ruling? So I think there's a couple of
10: different court rulings. You're, uh, Speaking of there and I'm not uh, I'm not qualified to talk about uh, the first one you mentioned yeah no, no that's uh, in fine. relation yeah in relation to uh, the Supreme Court of Canada's decision on the impact assessment act the government of Canada did release interim measures to indicate what we are doing right now with respect to that and uh, there's also going to be amendments to legislation and I know that folks are working very quickly um, to ensure that those uh, amendments are done as, as quickly as possible. The government recognizes that responsible development is critical to the prosperity of our country, and that time is of the essence for these projects currently in the impact assessment system.
1: I appreciate the time. Jill, information one more time for the upcoming meeting of placentia
10: That's right. It's on January the 8th from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Star of the Sea Hall. We really hope folks can come and join us. If you can, uh, register but by- by calling seven zero nine seven two five two seven two five, or uh, by calling, uh, or sorry, or by email at cooper cove at iaac aeicgcca If you can't register, just uh, just come out. That's fine too.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Joe. We'll Thank you.
10: Thank you very much. You're Thanks. You're bye
1: welcome. bye. Bye bye. Jill Adams with the satellite office for the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM
1: Big Land FM radio network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Terry, you're on the air.
11: Hi, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I've got, uh, I'm calling this morning to uh, spread the word about a fundraising I have uh, on GoFundMe page. Sure. Uh, It's for uh, a good friend of mine. Who, uh, who's taking care of his mother with Alzheimer's. And uh, right now he, he has no income at all, where he has to stay home 24-7 to take care of his mom. Uh, his father passed away uh, about 10 years ago when we came back to B.C., and now she has the Alzheimer's, and he's trying to take care of her. Uh, he's mm-hmm. in really, really hard shape right now where he has no income, and he's having a job, job, trying to find the, to pay the bills in the house and take care of the place. And I just want to get out there and spread the word Anybody, of your listeners, if they could uh, could uh, share it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media they have, uh, I, I don't have it personally myself. Otherwise, I'd do it. But I'd like for your listeners, if they could do that and spread the word, and I can raise some money for them.
1: What's the title on the GoFundMe page? Uh,
11: help a friend. Help a very good friend in need. And my name is Terry Hines.
1: It's. I mean the. The prevalence of Alzheimer's in the province and in the country is really alarming, and the forecasted numbers for people who will be suffering with Alzheimer's or dementia in the coming decades is just unbelievable. So, Terry, tell us a bit about your buddy, because it takes a certain kind of person. I mean, everyone loves their mom, but to be able to stay at home and take care of someone in whatever stage, advanced stage of Alzheimer's that they're dealing with, you know, tell us about your pal.
11: Well, we we eventually, first off, we left here, me and and two of my friends, we drove to B.C. back in 95, and uh, he, is a, he works as a ship builder, so he's worked all his life. He's a hard worker, a good, honest man, and then uh, it, back in 2012, his father uh, became ill, had cancer, so we had to return home. And it was just shortly after that, when his father passed, that his mother developed Alzheimer's, uh, and he's been, uh, spending, he has been spent all his savings, his, uh, his savings that he had from B.C., and all his pension money from where he worked with the uh, shipbuilders, uh, the shipyards in B.C., in Vancouver. And uh, right now, he's he's at a point where he, he's, he's got no money, period. And uh, his mother is so nice, nice person. I've known her for over 40 years, and I've got to do something to try to help him out.
1: Well, let's hope that if folks are so inclined and moved by your plea that they do exactly that. So it's on GoFundMe. It's a help a very good friend, and your name is, I assume it's attached to this. It's, what's your surname again, Terry?
11: Terry Hines,
1: H-Y-N-E-S. I appreciate the time. Good luck with this.
11: Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too, Terry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: The, the numbers. Just for some context, and some of the numbers we are looking at are you know, as, as old as 2020. So in 2020, it was estimated there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 597,000 individuals living with dementia in Canada. They forecast that number to grow to 1 million by 2030. So we've seen lots of examples where the writing is on the wall about needs or deficiencies or gaps in systems, and this one is right there in front of us. So if you look at uh, the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, their webpage, they will indeed have dementia numbers generally updated. I think when I had a look near the end of last year, you know, that 2020 number had grown from 597 to just over 600, and I don't know how they track it very accurately, but how do you prepare? So you compare and contrast that particular issue I mean, like one million people, almost doubled from 2020 to double to, to, pardon me to 2030, all the conversations regarding aging in place and supports for an expansion of home care versus institutionalizing people. At some point, with the level of medical need, you may indeed have no option but to be in a like a long-term care facility with a dementia ward, but those numbers are really. Quite something. They're staggering numbers. I mean, one million by twenty thirty, and the population of the country will be somewhere in the neighborhood of what forty three million people. So that's a significant percentage of the population that will be dealing with uh, a dementia diagnosis, and of course, the advanced stages as life moves on. So, I mean, how do you how do you prepare for these types of things? Because we've seen the exact same thing happen with a couple of areas. Areas of note that will be a big part of the campaign uh, debates is healthcare. We saw the numbers, we saw what was happening. It's not a new phenomenon that all of a sudden people don't have a family doctor. It's not a new phenomenon that there's long wait lists to see a specialist or long wait times in an emergency room. And the country kind of did a poor job. And you know we can look at this province and talk about whatever you think the performance is of the current government and or the past PCs, but the writing's been on the wall for quite a long time. So whether it be the shortages of healthcare professionals or other moving parts inside the healthcare system, in addition to that, Housing. I mean, this one for me is a little bit more frustrating even than healthcare, because healthcare is a really tricky piece of business to uh, accommodate the aging population, to accommodate the growing population, and the recruitment of healthcare professionals, which are in high demand and they're very mobile, and everyone's competing for the exact same pro. We've got ourselves in a position now where it's province versus province. We're basically basically putting healthcare professionals, doctors, registered nurses, and all the other disciplines on a bit of an auction block where there's uh, certainly has to be a little bit of federal intervention here. We don't want the feds to be managing our affairs. That's not what I'm suggesting. But, you know, to try to figure out, you know, maybe some parameters or metrics for just how much provinces can spend because we can't be in a position where the wealthiest provinces have all the doctors. Well, not all the doctors, you know what I mean. And in the world of housing, things have changed dramatically over the last 30 years. So at one point, we thought about housing as exactly that, a place to live right? Now it's considered an economic benchmark. You know, we measure economic success with uh, housing starts here in the province or across the country. So we went from the largest piece of equity that I would own and a GDP contributor all the way from what was simply a place to lay your head, somewhere healthy and safe for you to live. So there's been a stark contrast in those two mindsets and something has to give on that front. In addition, on the housing and the healthcare file, You know, people are quick to call someone a racist or whatever the case may be if you talk about immigration. You know, safety and security and vetting and knowing who people are is important. And it doesn't, in my opinion... It doesn't make you a bad person to talk about and to ask the federal government about their immigration goals and the numbers that they're trying and willing and wanting to welcome to the country. Yes, we've got to attract skilled tradespeople. Yes, we've got to attract folks in the tech and innovation sector. Yes, we have to attract healthcare professionals. But the immigration numbers, as they're currently proposed, are having a real impact on not only the newcomer, but all Canadians. We've got a housing crunch you know, when we talk about the forecasted numbers from the Canadian Mortgage and Holding Corporation, the need to build 10,000 units per year for the next six years, a to total 60,000, when this past calendar year, we built somewhere in the neighborhood of 900. So immigration is having an impact on people's ability to find a home. It's having an impact on people's ability to be in the healthcare churn, to get a family doctor, to not experience 12, 18-hour waits in emergency rooms, right? To not be on extended lists to try to see a specialist. So again... Immigration comes with a big economic upside, it comes with a societal upside in my personal problem, in uh, my personal opinion, but it has an impact on housing and healthcare in particular. And nobody wants to come to the country to not be able to find a place to live and or access to healthcare. And it really does have a widespread impact. So again, you know, some of these conversations are difficult to have because some of them, some of them get curtailed or stalled before they ever really get going because people will pigeonhole you as being a bad person or a racist or a socialist or whatever label people are willing and wanting to throw around these days but I think a pragmatic conversation about the rate at which the population is growing in the country is worthwhile. Again, there are real-life implications here. Last year was unprecedented population growth here in the country and yes there's lots of good that can come with it but yes there's lots of additional pressures on the system as a result of the population growing the way it is. Now, When we even look around about some of the shortcomings in the labor shortage world, and that's very real. I mean, just ask people who work in various industries. If we're talking about, say, skilled trades and home building, if we're talking about transitions like oil to electric, if we're talking about the number of doctors and nurses and LPNs that we have to recruit to come to the country, these are all very real, and they've got to be attended to. And the backlog can't not be the way it currently is and the wait times for a variety of things, from work visas, the student visas, and uh, everything under the immigration file. But the numbers are becoming a bit overwhelming on those two notable fronts, healthcare care and housing. What do you think of that? If you want to pick up uh, on that particular point or you want to wrap up the show this morning with a topic of your choosing that we haven't been discussing that you think deserves more air, we can do exactly that right after this break. Don't go away.
0: This is Open Line on the VOCM Big
1: Land FM Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'd like for the
12: hunters and that and people of the province to go in on Engage NL at Engage NL and, and there's a survey, or not, I wouldn't call it a survey, they want input from hunters and other people and whatever to changes to the Hunting regulations, like uh, in crime and uh, fines and that and stuff to go from 1000 to $5,000 up to 2000 to $25,000 or, pr- or imprisonment. Like the fines and that and stuff are gone to a bit of uh, outside the possibility of people paying for them, that they're going to wind up putting people in jail. And you can get six months in jail. Also, too, there's a big one there with regards to uh, discharging of uh, a firearm within a thousand meters of a school playground, athletic field, or within three hundred feet meters of a dwelling. Now, dwelling is defined, uh, well, it's not defined in the Act of the uh, of the regulations and that, and and is basically relying on a uh, dictionary meaning of a dwelling. Now a dwelling is basically somewhere where is permanent place of residence. In other words, a cabin is not a dwelling. Yes it is. But a tent a tent can be a dwelling yep. as long as somebody's living there full time. So they're out there threatening people and charging people with this all the time when they don't have any business to be at it, trying to trying to get convictions and that and stuff.
1: Just wait now, you're suggesting that it's not a good idea to have a safety buffer zone around where people would be living and not hunting?
12: No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there right now, it's uh, it's not fair and defined. And they're out there trading people with this this thing about it, and that whatever, and charging people where they shouldn't be. Uh, yes, I agree with a buffer around there. I, I just had a moose killed uh, 50 feet from my property, uh, 200 feet from my garage, and uh, while they've never done anything about that, but uh, like I said, it's it's not clear sure what it all should be, and this is where there needs to be people's input into it, uh, not just mine, but other people's too. Uh, a lot of this stuff there is is gone a bit overboard because these people go after childishness and Harrison, all the old people and and the younger people, and you know, like I said, I, I got charged before because I brought ammunition out to Whitburn from St John's for my father to go moose hunting, and I got charged with it, just bringing the ammunition out, and some of this stuff is uh whatever that's it's given the warden's reason for that and stuff and they go there and they gope people and the problem with it is we at all honest wardens and everything else uh I would agree but like I said it's uh it's 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 a site there now where people need to go in and put input into it. I'm, I've been recently charged with uh, well, the charges are there now. i got the pair in court and that and stuff. Uh, I think they got five charges against me. Uh, and, you know, there's on, it's on call for basically. And uh, they got false reports there. They had false reports that they were acting on that weren't true. But they came on my property and they won't do anything about the public mischief of the people who called in and put in false reports. But then they go there trying to find something and digging and, and asking you quite, kinds of questions and, that and bullying you and then picking up on things. Like one thing that was there, uh, my wife put on Facebook that uh, you got a moose in the road. They're interpreting that that I shot it in the road. Whereas my wife went, it's in the road is that way, to the left. Out the road is to the right. And they they come up with all of this stuff that, technically speaking, that they're trying to get, get out there and get you. But uh, my, my uh, involvement with those people, anything but been positive as far as I'm concerned. They leave a lot to be desired as, uh, as peace officer. Like, they chased me one day last year. They chased me the whole evening. I was up hunting towards the end of the season. I was the only one there. Anyway, when I came out, they were there, and they asked me for my license, and I couldn't find it. I forgot that two weeks before that, I put in another vehicle to go rabbit shooting, and this time I was garbage hunting. So they followed me home, uh, found my license in the other vehicle, and then they charged me with hunting without my license on me, in my possession.
1: What kind of fun does know, that I'm, come with?
12: I'm 75 years old, and, you know, my memory is not uh, as good as what it was one thing. but I think we're all guilty of a little bit of lapse of memory. And to be charged with this stuff uh, is going a bit too far, as far as I'm concerned. My, my grandson, they charged my grandson one time with crossing over the bridge on a bike. They threatened him to produce his driver's license just after getting his driver's license and everything else. thousand people were after doing this. Hundreds of people were going to the service station, the same thing as what he did. They charged him, and then his insurance was going to go up. They demanded to see his driver's license, which he had no right to do. Then they put it there that his insurance was going to go up
1: $5,000. Just one five second. Years. Why are they not allowed to ask for someone's license?
12: they're just not allowed. you got no business to ask for your license. they your driver's license. If you're out in the country, right, right today I have to ask them for your driver's license. And if you don't show it to them, they'll say, well, you've got to have a uh, a picture ID or we're going to arrest you. And these bullying tactics and everything else, as far as I'm concerned, are uncalled call for. And, and there's a lot of uh, stuff there that's going on. Like... Uh, you know, they got my gun that and stuff there now and they got the wrong gun because I, the, my gun was faulty or whatever. They asked me what kind of a gun I used and uh, well I said uh, I use this particular gun but at that particular time I never used that gun because it was faulty and I had to, to take it to the gunsmith and I used another gun but when they asked me what type of gun I used I told them I'm going to use but they never asked me which gun I used to shoot the moose. There's a lot, you know, and they get there and they they intentionally try to get you to commit to something that they can charge you with. They don't go about trying to prove you're innocent. They're working for me just about well they are for you or for everybody else. And if they got something to prove me innocent, then they should prove it innocent. Like I shot the moose uh, off the road. Uh, the moose was out on the bog, and uh, I shot it, but it came down on the road. Now there's precedents for this to shoot the then close to the road. You got an injured moose either in the road or around the road, the, and around the cabins, that are an endangerment to the public. So you can uh, you can uh, you know kill it. So there, there's a lot of and this thing there. But, say that
1: part again that there's a moose could be somewhere that's a danger to the public? What does that mean?
12: Well, I shot a moose. It took off. When it took off, it went towards the road. It went down in the road. So now here you've got an injured moose riding around with a big set of antlers onto him down the road running around in an injured state. So what do you do? Do you leave it there for somebody to come along that they can hit it or whatever? And it's proven before anyway that there's cases uh, before this that, uh, you know, if there's an engine animal in the road, you can move it. But one of the big things, too, is in this uh, questionnaire that they got, is they want to have it that you've got to put the tags on the moose before you can do any cleaning or any processing or anything whatsoever.
1: What's wrong with that? <laughs> I'm sure the boys out in a small boat got to put a tag on the halibut but they haul over the gunnel.
12: Yes, but the thing is, is that like we shot one, uh a little while ago it went, fell down in the low spruce you had to tow it out 30 or 40 feet to get out the, to, to get it out We had the hollow trail there to get it out but not only that we shot one in the pond and i didn't my buddy shot one a couple of years ago went out in the gully we couldn't get it up over the bank and we had to tow it down to the length of the gully and he had to go up to almost up to his neck he was always wasting water uh with the moose out, out, out in the gully okay just, we're know. almost
1: out of time mike but if you can get to the moose to set it up to tow can't you just put the tag on before you tow it out? Underwater. Underwater.
12: <laughs> the, legs, the legs are down underneath water. And you're down in the bag net sometimes.
1: <clears throat> Last one, very quickly, because it's 11.59. Do you think it's incumbent on the hunter in this case that if you are indeed hunting, that you should understand the Wildlife Act, and the Endangered Species Act, and adhere to it? You know, not talk about your own personal issues with the uh, enforcement officers, but do you think if you're a hunter, you should know the rules and abide by them? Yes, I do. But a lot of times, sometimes you can't. Uh,
12: it, it's not that practical to do. Uh, it, it's just the circumstances there. You've got to move, stand on the bag, and you got to try to hook onto it. You're up to your knees in bag of water or whatever, and you're out okay. there trying to haul a moosey. Uh, Mike, i
1: just got to get in there because it's r- right up to 12 o'clock. We're out of time today, but uh, people can go to Engage NL. Uh, to uh, involve themselves in this questionnaire. The deadline, I believe, for consultations is next week, maybe the 11th, if I remember correctly. So uh, yep. I appreciate the time. Mike, stay in touch. i got to go. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, All right. Uh, good show. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.